Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast episode by the guest are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the hosts or partners. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. All right, guys. Hey, thanks for coming back. Got a good one for you today. But before that, just keep in mind that any of our content that comes out, if you take something away from it, find something in it, something resonates within you about it, make sure you're not selfish and you share it out to the community. And also, if you haven't picked up, picked up a version or a copy of my uh, book, Lines of Marja, it is for sale on Amazon, $17.99. And you can also link up with me uh, through DM or through one of the uh, social medias. And you can get a signed copy through me. Keep that in mind. Today, I'm bringing you a guest. His name is John Drago. Uh, John's a former Marine. Well, he's a Marine forever, but he's former active duty Marine uh, who spent some time in um, in the infantry and then uh, uh, kind of moved his way around and has now ended up on the SWAT team in uh, Pender County right here in North Carolina. I ran into John um, as I was up at the Lieutenant uh, Colonel resigned Stuart Scheller book signing in uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina over at um, Barnes and Noble. And we just struck up conversation and we started talking and, and the more, you know, the more we talked, the more we opened up, you know, different, uh, different topics. And it was great. We talked for, you know, something like four hours, four and a half hours about, you know, resourcing at the police departments and uh, police departments in general, Marine Corps, um, uh, Marine Corps stories and things of the like. So I wanted to have John on, I wanted to bring him on and we're going to talk about a couple different things, a couple different topics today. But um just as a just as an opening, we'll start with uh, start with you. So, John, thanks for coming out, man. Thanks for coming out to the show, and and uh, and I'm, I've been excited about the conversation. I've talked to the fellows about it, and uh, ready to get after it. But thanks for taking the time, man. Absolutely, guys. Uh, first off, thank you guys for giving me this opportunity. I am humbled to be here today. Um, very excited. Looking forward to uh, this conversation. Uh, just getting to know one another, and just sharing some of my experiences. Um, from the military now law enforcement and like i said truly truly uh, thankful to be here yeah man appreciate it awesome so i mean uh, the way i like to start each episode if you've ever seen any shows kind of some pointed questions there in the beginning and i want to know where you come from i want to know where a, a, a big deep dive into what i'm looking at looking into for myself um, my own personal research is where does american exceptionalism come from absolutely um and it comes from somewhere uh so what was the what was the uh, childhood dynamic as far as uh, was both parents in the house? Did you have siblings? Was religion involved? Those are the the three big wave tops I like to cover in the beginning. So um, I was born in Colombia, actually, uh, South America. For mm-hmm. those who don't know where Colombia is, um, very uh, beautiful country. We're known for for coffee. Uh, I was born there, and mainly I was raised by my grandmother. Um, when I was two years old, my mother migrated to the United States and pursuit of the American dream and to provide for me and my brother, my older brother at the time, and the rest of my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was not in the picture. Um, when he was, he just kind of came in, 
saw me for a day. Um, I was lucky that he showed up on birthdays occasionally, but other than that, it was strictly my grandmother, um, my older brother, my co two cousins, and my aunt. Mm -hmm. Those were those were my family. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother was very strict um, from the beginning. She still very hard values on me, um, and she wanted the best for me. Mm -hmm. So that to me meant a lot. Um, I would speak to my mom over the phone um, about every day. And she would call down there, and and you know, I I remember when I was two, um, I have a, a very vague image of her, but I didn't see my mom again until I was nine. Mm -hmm. So when I was nine, the opportunity came for me and my brother to move to the United States, and uh, I remember being on that airplane with my grandma, and I was nine years old, and she was my mother and my father figure. Mm -hmm. And I remember being on an airplane. She put me down on an airplane, and and I just cried. <laughs> I mean, crying, crying, because I didn't know what to expect. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm leaving everything behind me, mm -hmm. coming to a new and different country, different culture, having to learn a different language. I don't know anybody, mm -hmm. and I was very nervous. But um, I, I gave her a hug, and you know, she said everything was gonna be great. Um, got to the United States on July fourth, two thousand and four. Yeah, uh, I landed in JFK, uh, New York airport, and uh, I remember going through customs and everything, and and they put me in this little room. You landed in JFK, where you were headed to? Oh, uh, New Jersey. That's okay. where my mom okay. lived. Okay. So, gotcha. landed in one of the biggest airports. <laughs> yes, yeah, same man. That's a heck yeah. of a one to start in. Uh, lang language barrier. Um, yeah. I think um, I was with the uh, one of the ladies from the air, uh, airline was you know guiding me around. Mm -hmm. But um, custom, they because um, it was my first time coming to the United States. They brought me to this little room where you know they had to verify my visa and everything, right? Oh yeah. Now, so, are you with your brother at least? No, my older brother actually ended up coming by, uh, thirty days behind me. Okay, okay. So I was by myself. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And you're nine. Nine years old. Uh, so you can imagine how that felt, you know. I'm sure that's scary. Scary for any nine-year-old. Yeah. Um, so I'm in this little oh, customs room where customs. You know, they're doing their whole, make, make sure my green card at the time, everything was good. So I was there for about an hour, and uh, they finally gave me the, the thumbs up. So the airline the assistant, she walks me out of the um, the customs into, you know, essentially where everybody's at waiting for their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I'm walking out the airport, and I'm just, like, looking for my mother, but yeah, I don't have an image of my mom, you know. And I just remember she runs to me and picks me up. Um, and I just start crying, you know, yeah, safety. And it gives me a little more emotions because looking back at it, you know, it was challenging. Um, mm. my young, I met my young, my younger brother, um, who was born here and he was about five. So when you met him for the first time, no. So that, he actually traveled to Columbia to okay. visit me a couple of times. So, but that was actually when I came here, he was with my mom. And uh, my mom was married at the time, so that's who welcomed me here. And like I said, July 4th, and, uh, you know, they're all very excited. You know, I'm looking around, so whole different, everything is nice. You know, coming from a third world country mm. to the United States was huge. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the week, holiday weekend, and uh, my mom was like, hey, we got we got a trip planned. And we got all our friends, we're there, everybody wants to meet you. Um, so I didn't have anything on me. I had, a, I had a, maybe like a pair of clothes. And... Uh, 
she takes me down to the mall and we go shopping. They just buy me all kinds of stuff, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, you know, and we ended up going down to uh, the beach, uh, South Jersey. Uh, I actually call it Wildwood, New Jersey, where uh, we camped for the weekend. And, you know, everything was great. Uh, met everybody, all the friends, but it quickly be started becoming, it started hitting me because I realized the, the language barrier. Mm. Everybody was speaking English. Everybody was laughing, you know, joking. Everybody knew each other. And I just felt like I didn't belong there. Right. You know, I remember going to bed at night crying because eh, I miss my grandma, you know. Mm. And uh, I just told my mama, I don't, I don't want to be here. But she said, it'll work out. Um, then, you know, she enrolled me in school. And uh, I think it was fourth to fifth grade where I was, that, I, that I went into. And um, I went in class and, you know, everybody welcomed me. Everybody was very friendly. But I was in the ESL uh, program, uh, which is the English second language. Okay. Where you pretty much, you know, the class is being taught in Spanish, but they're also teaching you English at the same time. And it was very hard for me, you know, mm -hmm. even at nine years old, uh, started picking up the English understanding the conversation in about six months. But I remember, you know, my neighbors, all I, they would say, you know, things to me, you know, I would say, yes, yes. You know, <laughs> it was just, everything was yes. <laughs> but anyways, um, I went through school, um, graduated, made uh, elementary school, went to middle school, and my mom got divorced. So it was just me, my older brother, my older brother at the time, he was still, same thing, he came, but he came when he was uh, 15. So it was a little more challenging for him. Mm -hmm. um, he went into high school, and he had some challenges in high school because um, he just, again, the culture difference, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he, he ended up dropping out of high school, you know, getting himself in trouble and causing a lot of stress for my mom and my family. Mm -hmm. And my mom was a single mother working uh, sometimes two jobs. She worked a night shift. And we lived in a small apartment. In um, Jersey? In Elizabeth, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, which is a, a known Hispanic community. And uh, we adapted pretty quickly. Um, I ended up starting high school. And um, the opportunity came. My high school was offering uh, a program called uh, an, um, ROTC, which was the Marine Corps ROTC. And I uh, had the, a first sergeant, a retired first sergeant, who was an instructor. And as a freshman, I remember going in there, and I'm like, man, I want to be in here. I remember everybody, you know, doing formations and marching mm -hmm. and, and doing the drills. So I signed up for that instead of uh, gym, the typical gym. Mm -hmm. And I started going through the whole program from all the way to senior year. Um, I played sports. I played soccer. Um, it was pretty much all I wanted to do, play soccer and being on the ROTC program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that to me was huge because uh, that instructor, that first sergeant, was kind of like a father figure to me. You remember who it was? Yeah, first sergeant Philbert, uh, Michael Philbert. To this day, we're friends on Facebook. Shout out, Michael. Yeah, um, and and he was typical first sergeant, you know, <laughs> by the book. But hey, uh, I'm thankful. A lot of my friends actually uh, were did, in the program with me as well. What is it about? What is it about him that made him that impactful to you? Um, he was straightforward. He didn't sugarcoat anything. If you were wrong, you were wrong. He corrected you, but he. He, he told you why he was correcting you, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and, and he he legit wanted you to be successful, whether it was going off to college or going off to the military. Like he had genuine care about yes. your future. Absolutely. Um, and he spent more, more time with us than he did with his family. 
Mm-hmm. And um, most of us that were in the program had some interest in the military. Um, however, my mother told me at a young age, she said, I'm a single mom. I can't, I can't afford to pay for you to go to school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're going to have to either get a scholarship or join the military. Mm-hmm. But growing up in Colombia, um, I remember seeing the police officers on there and the National Army. And I always thought I wanted to be either a cop or in the military. There's something about you, your archetype said that yes. you were going to protect people and not the opposite of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and down there, there was so much violence and so much drugs and then so much crime. I didn't want to be part of any of that. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to be on the, on the other side. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be making that difference. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity came. Um, I was a junior in high school. Uh, playing soccer, my grades were you know average. I wasn't the smartest kid. Um, I didn't get in any trouble. I had a second job. I worked at the mall at a pretzel shop. Um, bought my first car when I was 17. I think I paid like 800 bucks for it. A little Honda Civic. Heck yeah. But it got me from point A to point B. And um, when I was 17, I told my mom I wanted to join the Marine Corps. Or actually, I I wanted to join the the, the military. Period. And um, but I was convinced that I was going to go to the, to the Navy. There was something about the Navy that, that really struck to me. What was it? Um, I don't know, just the uniforms. Um, we had another instructor that was in the Navy as well, and she, um, she was very like adamant, like, hey, you know, this is the Navy. You get to travel the world and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I remember seeing the posters in school about the Navy SEALs and all that stuff, and I was like, man, that's cool, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to join the Navy. Mm-hmm. So when I turned 17, I went up to my mom and said, hey, I want to, I want to join the, the military mom. And she was so proud. She was like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, of course. So, you know, obviously I was not 18, so she had a sign for me. So I went down to the recruiter station, and it was both the Army, the Marine Corps, and Navy all together in one building. Mm-hmm. So when you walk in, um, I remember going in, and, and I see the Navy recruiter. I think it was like a chief, and, and, and he was just by himself in the desk. And I go in there, and I'm like, uh, I'm looking for my recruiter such and such. And he's like, well, he ain't here. And it was like a Friday, Friday afternoon. And I was like, okay, well, I'm, I guess I'm going to go home, right? But next door to it, it was the Marine Corps recruiter, and it was like chaos coming from that office. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, obviously curiosity kills a cat. Yeah. So I poke my head in there in the, in the Marine Corps recruiter's office, and uh, they're all doing pull-ups and just, you know, hollering and, and just the sounds of getting after yeah. it <laughs> yep, and, yep. <laughs> and they see me they see me put my head in there and the recruiter's like you. hey you get over here right so i'm like yes sir you know um what are you doing here i said i'm here to join the navy sir he's like the what <laughs> the navy he's like no you're not you're gonna be a marine hop on the pull-up bar and give me 10 right but at the time i was pretty in shape because i was getting ready yeah uh, we run three miles a day um pull-ups my mom bought me a pull-up bar that you put in, in, in over your um the frame of your room yeah and that's what i use bust them out yeah so i knocked out 10 and they're like oh you know this guy you know so i liked it they're like they invited me to be part of the, the you know coming to their uh weekly pt sessions which is like a wednesday every wednesday we met at 4 30 and i was always there on time we ran three four five miles i mean we were in shape mm-hmm. so then um I had to take my ASVAB, right? So I took my ASVAB, and I it was I didn't study for it, right? It was bad. <laughs> it was it was a low score. Recruiter said, "Hey, man, listen, we got to take the ASVAB again." 
So um, I uh, ordered a book online, uh, Ask Vet for Dummies. I did the same thing. Yeah. And uh, I went home and, and just read the whole thing, studied the whole thing. And uh, It's a big book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a it, big book. it was. It was thick. <laughs> yeah. Yellow book. And it was like $20 at the time. And in between school, work, my time off, and, you know, going to the weekly uh, pulley functions, I just read that book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And eventually I went back and took that uh, ASVAB again, and I scored very high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the, the recruiter was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, um, at the time, I liked to work on cars. That mm-hmm. was my hobby, working on cars. Mm-hmm. He's like, perfect, dude. I have the perfect job for you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, gonna, what is it? Going to ruin that for you. <laughs> yeah. Because in high school, I took part of a vocational program, which was half of the day we were at school, learning math, language, you know, science, history. And the other half, they would load us up in a bus and take us to another school. Um, and then we would just learn, you know, how to work on vehicles. Trades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. vocational school. I yeah. loved it. Yeah. And all the guys that I graduated with are now like <coughs> big time mechanics back home working for BMW and oh, Lexus. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, yeah, I want to work on cars. He's like, perfect. You're going to be a diesel mechanic for the uh, motor T. I was like, okay, that sounds cool. Bet. Right. So, um, you know, I go to MEPS, uh, get sworn in and everything. Um, and then uh, I get, you know, brought into the delayed entry program and had about, had about six months. So six months back in high school, I finished high school, graduated, and then they're like, yeah, you're leaving next week. So my mom throws me a huge going away party. Mm-hmm. All my friends are there, my girlfriend at the time, everybody, right? And then time comes, and then, you know, mom is crying, everybody's upset, and I didn't leave. Oh, no. You know? <laughs> oh, no. <clears throat> so went back to the house, hey, mom, I ain't leaving, I ain't leaving today, maybe next month. So I went, back, I went back to working, and then the same thing happened again, right? And finally... You got another party? No, no. Oh. Finally, the third <laughs> time the third time, the recruiter was like, all right, dude, you're, you're leaving this time for sure. Um, and I turned 18, December 5th, uh, and then I left uh, end of January, January 23rd of 2013. I, I pushed out of uh, uh, Brooklyn, New York, got on that plane, down to uh, I think it was Savannah, Georgia, and I don't know what I was doing, man. I was nervous, um, but I know this is what I wanted to do. I, I didn't know what to expect. It is. A, it's a. It's a. It's a. It's it's a, it's a ball full of anxiety on that flight going down at 18 years old. I don't care who you are, or what you come from. Yeah. You don't know what to expect, and that's the the unknown is what gets you. Like you know, you know that you like you said, you knew there were going to be people there with you. <clears throat> and you wanted to be with him, but you didn't know who it was, where it was, yeah. what it was. Yeah, man. So you go to PI then, huh? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. East, Coast, East Coast Marine. So I remember being on the plane and just thinking, man, all my friends are going off to college. You know, state universities, uh, Rutgers is New Jersey. Uh, oh, they, yeah. Yeah. Everybody's going to the, all these schools, playing sports on scholarships. And here I am, you know, joined the Marine Corps. But, hey, I was proud, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that was a big deal to me because I was going to pay back for the opportunity of my family and myself being in the United States, you know, chasing that American dream. Sure. So um, we get Savannah and uh, one of the Marines, you know, comes and he's wearing a campaign cover and he just starts kind of not yelling, but like he's a little stern. So we're like, (laughs) whatever, dude, you want me on the bus? Cool. We all load up in the bus, like, I don't know, like 40 of us, maybe 50, right? 
I never met any of these dudes ever in my life. Mm -hmm. They're from all all over, you know, the United States, the eastern side of the Mississippi River, like we call it, right? And um, we're going down to, uh, from the airport down to Paris Island. It's like an hour, hour and a half ride. But it was like late at night, man. It was like 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. um, and I left my I left my house at like 4 a.m. that morning. <laughs> so my mom is probably wondering, man, what's going on? I haven't heard from him, my family, you know? Mm -hmm. But I told her I would call her whenever I can. So we're going down the bus. Everybody's joking and, and thinking about, man, this is going to be a joke. Like, we have nothing to worry about, right? And suddenly the bus comes to a complete stop. And, uh, you know, MP's like, hey, everybody put your head down. You know, nobody talks. So at that point, we're like nervous, man. This is the, like, shit, we're in boot camp. <laughs> so the bus driver, to this day, I still believe he just drove us in circles. Because mm -hmm. he was the longest from the gate to where, you know. And when he came to a complete stop, man, I will never forget this. Whoever it was just got on that bus, and it was just like the devil himself. <laughs> you know? He's like, everybody out of my bus, you know? And, and you know, I got my little yellow folder on me with all my paperwork. And standing in my, my yellow footprints. And when I was standing there, and, you know, I'm getting yelled at. Everybody's getting yelled at. At that point, I was like, <laughs> holy shit, what the fuck did I do? Like what, <laughs> like, what did I get myself into, you know? It was then that Drago said, "Yeah, oh shit. Like, <laughs> Jesus. So, you know, they give you they give you the, the, the typical spe speech. You only go through these hatches one time and one time only, right? And uh, that's going to be the journey to become a United States Marine. So I went through the hatches, um, sitting in the little, you know, small school-sized desk that they give you. Yeah. And I'm just getting yelled at, you know, and, you know, call my mom. I'm getting yelled at and, and <laughs> reading off the freaking wall. And I arrive safe. Don't send me bulk items, whatever. Boom, hang. Like five seconds. And then started boot camp. Um, and boot camp was was tough for me. Um, yeah. It was mentally challenging for me. It wasn't mm -hmm. physically. It was more mentally because, um, number one, my dis my my bearing sucked, man. Um I remember when we, on, on Saturday. You got a little extra attention from time to time. Oh, man, that's Saturday. <laughs> that um, Black Saturday, how we call it, right? When they pick you up and you meet your drill instructors, and then they just start going crazy. Man, to me, it was the funniest thing seeing other guys getting IT. <laughs> it was the funniest thing. And man. how like how they reacted to it? Yes. Oh, yeah. But then they, I got caught, man, laughing so much. And, and they used to, I used to get they used to take me out to the sand pit and <laughs> so very quickly I learned not to laugh and, and started developing my my bearing but um how long would you say that they, took man it took me like two weeks two weeks yeah real quick and then my freaking, they helped you study that yeah okay then my rack mate man this guy he was a complete idiot like oh good he will fuck everything up you know we were, couldn't make his rack or anything so i would i would get punished instead of him mm -hmm. so eventually i started getting pissed off at him and said hey man you need to put your head out of your ass like Get, get it together, you know. We're going on, on phase two here. Um, we need to get, you know. And I remember, you know, you know, sending letters and telling my family, man, it sucks. You know? <laughs> Fuck, man. Like, can't wait to be off. Um, but as we got closer to graduation, you know, meeting all of my, uh, the rest of the guys there. Because, you know, I remember being under the rack and seeing the tally marks. Yeah. Like, with Sharpies. Yeah. You know, and. And our drill instructor, man, I will never forget this man. Uh, his name is Sergeant Gay. Shout out. This good. I think he was like a force recon dude, but he was just mean, dude. Mean, dude. And uh, 
another guy, uh, Sergeant Kalina, man. Great guy. I still talk to him to this day. He's a gunny now. Well, first sergeant, I'm sorry. And he was our, our green hat. And this dude just smoked us, man, all the time. Like, man, there was, there was no in-between. Like, you're going to get it or you're not going to get it. I remember going out. We're, we're doing drill, right? We're marching toward the parade deck. And, and it was hot. South Carolina, sand flies, you know, oh, everywhere, man. Not cool. And I'm just, we're marching at Port Arms, and I just couldn't help it. I was always, like, towards the middle of the platoon. So what happened when you're in the middle of the platoon? So we're marching uh, down the parade deck, you know, doing our drill stuff, and sand flies are everywhere, hitting my neck, my face, hitting the rest of my buddies. Man, and I just couldn't help it, but smacked my face, and I got <laughs> caught. And Kalina, he's like, uh, everybody hope everybody freeze right so freeze and he's like what did you just do I said, oh, sir this recruit just trying to you know get the fly out of his face and he just lost it you know he's like oh, good good <laughs> pick it up so i grab it with my left you know on, on hand he's like everybody bring it on right we're gonna have a barrel service <laughs> oh no yeah we're gonna have a barrel service you know he killed a sand fly so you know then we went back to the squad bay, and he's like, everybody put your sweat towels on, you know, close all the windows. And we just got smoked for, like, 30 minutes. And, yeah, it was good times. Um, <laughs> and then we graduated boot camp. Um, what, mom, did, what did your buddy say to you that you were coming down hard on for jacking up when he had to get slayed for you slapping the flea? Man, I, I just he just kind of looked at me, and he's like, he didn't have much to say. Yeah. <laughs> He knew. I get it. Yeah, he just, he, he had no right to talk. Yeah. I mean, and we would get mad at each other for, for messing up or whatever, but we under, we knew that, hey, this is just games, man. My yep. games. Like, that's the thing about boot camp is the sooner you can make it right in your head that yeah. this is just a big game, well, the sooner you're going to, like, be more sane about it and more calm when things happen. It's like, they're going to tell you to paint the wall black, mm-hmm. and you're going to do it perfect, and they're going to ask you why it's not white. And you right. just got to go, yep, get the white paint out. You know what I mean? Right. Because if you fight it and say you try to say it, right, you know, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, so no matter what we did, we were always wrong. and But it was expectation, and, and I understood, started to understand why they were doing the things that they were making us do. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting close to graduation. Uh, family day rolls around. Family comes down. Uh, you know, my mom, I lost a lot of weight, man. Uh, probably like 30 pounds mm-hmm. uh, mom was super proud she brought everybody down my cousins i mean everybody everybody mm-hmm. came down and graduation was to this day graduation was probably one of the most proudest things in my life you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. marching down that parade deck it's like perfect you know everybody we're on our chart i was i graduated in april end of april so it was charlie season and nice. it was the music the drums it was you know we're marching to the beat of the drums and just seeing the stand packed with family members, mm. it was such a huge, proud moment. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I will never forget it. Mm-hmm. So, went home for my 10 days of leave, you know, recharging batteries. And then it was time for me to come to uh, MCT. And you did that right here at Geiger, yeah? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. So, <clears throat> I remember when I landed in Jacksonville and uh, took the cab to MCT in my little pickle suit. Because <laughs> you have to check in your pickle suit. And the cab driver was like, where are you coming from? I'm like, oh, I'm coming from New Jersey. 
He's like, well, welcome to Jacksonville, North Carolina. It's going to be the black hole of the Marine Corps. You're never going to leave this place. <laughs> yeah. And I just... And looked, here you sit. <laughs> looked at him. Yeah, I looked at him and I was like, what are you talking about, man? Like, I'm just here and I'm be, you know, probably go to California, Hawaii, whatever. So, did MCT. It was cool. Uh, and then graduated and then I was a diesel mechanic. So, went right straight to Camp Johnson. So, just not even... We got on the bus. Yeah, yeah. Went down the bus. Again, in our pickle suit. We got down there, uh, checked in, and we had a gunny who, like, received us, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, everybody go upstairs, change into your camis. Uh, so we get down there, you know, camis. He's like, all right, we're going uh, on a run, tank, tank trail run. And he just smoked us down, you know, we ran for, like, four or five miles. And I was like, damn, never ending, right? <laughs> <laughs> never ending. Um but I picked up class, started learning, you know, the basic things, uh, the way the Marine Corps wants you to learn. Uh, it wasn't like the civilian side, the vocational side, where, you know, you're you're actually uh, standard. By, uh, I think it's uh, ASE, I think it is. Okay. Yeah. It's a little different. They teach you, you know, by the books. You know, you're watching little Marine Net classes. This is a wrench. This is a screwdriver. <laughs> and then you practice it. And then just the basics, right? And then graduated from there, and I got orders to um, second maintenance right there in Camel June. Yeah. Most of my class, we weren't there. The other half went to California. So I went there, and I checked in, and most of the platoon or the, uh, the unit was deployed to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. what, of, what year are we talking about? Oh, five? Mm -hmm. No, 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 13. Yeah. Why, Middle, 13, why did 14. I get messed up? Oh, you came here in 04, so yeah, yeah, yeah. later it would have been 05. You came in yeah. and... 13 this is right. 14 okay right. check check so this this was towards the end of 13 when i checked into my first uh unit so most of the unit unit was deployed to afghanistan so we kind of just hung back um the, the guys got back you know and um they just started taking us under their wing um i enjoyed my job but very quickly i realized that's not what i wanted to do in the wrong spot huh yeah what what made you feel like that well most of the guys in that unit were, um, <clears throat> they were going to get out. They wanted, you know, to do four years and get out. And I was very motivated. You know, mm -hmm. I was PT stud. Um, anything, anything that came available, like I was doing it. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a leader. I was taking charge of guys, you know. And very quickly, I started realizing that I did, that's not what I wanted to do. But... It was a job, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know, I did it anyway. Um, but at the same time, I started kind of like um, setting myself apart from the rest of my peers. Mm -hmm. So I got promoted to corporal very young. I, th I think it's like under two years. Um, I went through. Uh, I became a map, map instructor. I got uh, all the way to black belt. Then started teaching Marines, um, and then I got promoted to. Uh, when you say you started teaching Marines, you brought that back to your unit and started training martial arts with your like with your section of guys. Yeah, so yeah. they sent me to be a, a, a an instructor. So I came back and I started PTing my guys and and you know just kind of motivating my guys. And then they sent me to be a coach, a marksmanship coach. And I went out to the range, spent a lot of time in the range. Most of the time I was TAD doing that stuff. And then I came back, and right about the three and a half year time frame of being in um, the opportunity came to 
where I got orders to go be an enabler at a uh, second Marine Raider Battalion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now, what's uh, that mean when you say be an enabler? So you pretty much you get attached to the unit, and uh, these team guys, you know, they they need enablers. Mm-hmm. They need motor T guys, supply guys, comm guys. Um, they can't deploy without us. Mm-hmm, so we're mm-hmm. just an asset to them. Mm-hmm. So I checked into second MRB, um, Stone Bay. No, not Stone Bay, Courthouse Bay. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first day I walked in, I mean, it was like, this is where I belong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Them guys were, <clears throat> you could tell they're all in shape. You know, awesome, humble individuals. Like, I think it was a corporal at the time. And I just started picking people's brains. Yeah. Um, walk into a room where it's a bunch of lions that already proved themselves. Yes. So, so there's no room for personality. And then it becomes, these are the guys that operate on different levels than, mm-hmm. than the rest of the fleet. Yep. And then that becomes contagious regardless of who you are. Like exactly. we've, we've had that a lot of times on here. Guys and, talking about it. And I had a friend of mine who, he was a gunny at the time. He was an actual raider. Mm-hmm. Um, and he... He would just tell me how everything that he would do and everything that he, all the training and all the experiences, and he kept telling me, man, you, you try it out, man. Do Go for it. You could do it. Um, my biggest fear was swimming. Mm. I couldn't swim, man. So I checked into the unit uh, as an enabler. The Marines um, are amphibious, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Some of us. <laughs> yeah. That basic. There's a lot of us that can't swim, I figured out. <laughs> <laughs> that basic swim quad is not it, man. It's not <laughs> it. It's just they throw you off there with a pack and, and a rifle and, and like, okay, you're, you're done. You, you Don't touch the ground. All right, you pass. That is not it. So I got there, um, started um, very quickly. I realized that that I was not the Marine, the, the real Marine Corps. It wasn't like. The standard was different, man. It was relaxed standards. Haircuts were like no longer a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, basic things like your your blouse, like your boot blouses, your 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 cami sleeves. Yeah, like it was super laid back. Everybody was on a first name basis. It was no longer corporal, last corporal, sergeant. It was like, hey, come here, John, do this, right? So I was like, man, this is this is cool, man. Like, you know. I, they like be here at this time. But it was grown, grown, grown man rules. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was no longer that, you know, working party thing. It, it was that's where I wanted to be. So then, I started asking myself, how can I get there? How can I be one of these guys? Mm-hmm. So, started PTing and, and really pushing myself a lot. So, I saw the recruiter for uh, the Raider recruiter. I met with him. And he gave me a long, thick package, man. It was just like you had to run a PFT, and it was it was crazy at the time. But I got it all done. And then they give you an app where it's like a workout program for like eight weeks where you have to pretty much follow every program and just to prepare you for the assessment and selection What's to be coming? a radar. Yep, very nice. So I remember I went up to uh, – so it was funny because I had a gunny who was in charge of, me, of us, of the motor T unit which was operate, uh, you know, drivers and mechanics. But at the same time, as a mechanic, I didn't do my job there because we had civilians employed by Lockheed Martin. So it had a lot of, you know, the money is there. So Mm -hmm. these civilians were literally getting paid to do our job. We just kind of stood there and just watched and did whatever we wanted to, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I took my time 
and I just started employing it and bettering myself physical, you know, by being better at physical fitness. And I had the resources that other people didn't have, which was being around these guys. Mm-hmm. And they would come back from deployment, you know, and I pretty much saw how everything worked. I saw the whole cycle. You know, they do a workup, they'll do a bunch of training events, and they will deploy, they'll come back, and they'll have like a, you know, phase where they just kind of relax, go back to school. So I just started talking to these guys. And then I went up to the civilian who was in charge of my, my section, all crumby, you know, retired Marine. He was very like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Crusty Marine. And I told him, <laughs> sir, his name was Kelly. I remember I went up to him and said, Kelly, I want to be, I want to, I want to go to selection. He's like, what? No, like you're, you're a mechanic. I was like, well, I mean, not, it's my career, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So he finally said, whatever, go do whatever you want to do. So I got signed off on it. Um, and I got a date for August of 2016. That was when I was going to go to selection, but I had like a whole, almost a whole year to prepare for this. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I know my weakness was I couldn't swim. So I took advantage of the pool that these guys have, man. They have the, the facilities that these guys have is, is crazy, man. The gyms, the pool, and everything. Um, so I started going to that pool every morning, 5 a.m. Indoor pool, which was great. Winter, uh, I was there at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I just started kind of watching these guys. And, and I remember I asked them, hey, how can I be like you? How can I get like you? And they were so humble that they didn't care that I was a, a neighbor, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a, a pope, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They brought me, they took me under their wing, and they, they was like, this is how you do a breaststroke. This is how you do a side stroke. This is how you do a combat, you know. This is how you do an under, underwater crossover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is, hold your breath like this, do this, you know. And I started getting really good at it. And by the time selection came, I was ready. Smoked it. Yeah, I was ready. So I remember... I checked into selection um, middle of August of 2016. I'm right there in uh, Stone Bay. and um, Doesn't get much hotter around these parts man, than, than in the middle of August, bro. No, it doesn't. It's, it was Because they had they run two classes, like in the, in the spring, April, and then in August. So they gave me August. Um, I was a sergeant at the time. But when you check in, the first thing they tell you is, hey, everybody take your rank off. So there's no ranks. Um, but there was like lieutenants all the way down, all ranks, um, from all Marines from all over the world come because they want to try out to be mm-hmm. a special operator. Right. And, um, for me, it was just local. I just drove there, checked in and, um, you're, you're, you you have to cover your name tape. So all you have is U.S. Marine and then mm-hmm. you cover your name tape and they give you a number. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're known as a number. So I was 31 and, um, but initially it was. 331 of us candidates who checked into the school to try to, you know, get a spot. And the first day, I mean, you know, get there and uh, you have this cadre instructors who are, you know, either active uh, special operators or retired guys, mm-hmm. uh, private contractors, super knowledgeable guys, man, Green Berets, uh, a couple Navy SEALs, um, uh, I think it was a couple Air Force guys in there too. But they're super knowledgeable, um, and and then you're, you're you're taking instructions from them and then from a whiteboard. 
that every day, you know, you're coming in and you're and you're listening to what the, the schedule of the day is going to be, you know, but it was very physical, man. Every day he was either PFT, um, you're doing some type of physical event. And very quickly, the numbers started dropping mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because like, I mean, when you check in, you're, you're going to you change, you do a PFT. And then if you're not, if you're not cutting the numbers, you're, you're gone, you know, mm-hmm. and then you got to tie these knots, which I didn't know how to tie a knot. I'm a mechanic. You know, most of the guys that I was with, they're all infantry guys, uh, recon guys, snipers. You know, it was very few of us who were not in, in a combat-related MOS. Uh, so I just kind of started watching and other guys and just learning from everybody. But I knew um, that the first three weeks, it was a prep course where you have to prove yourself physically to be invited to the second phase. Mm-hmm. So... It was long rucks, you know. I remember one day we had to be there early, early in the morning, 4 a.m., and um, and, and it was very strict, man. They had a a, a, a scale where you would bring your ruck, and uh, it had to be exactly 45 pounds. If it was a pound less or under, your you you know you had to go fix it, and they would you know note that down like toward against you. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. and so. Started rucking, you know, and and these guys are are fast, man. These <laughs> recon guys and snipers are fast. Cause that's what they do. I'm a motor T guy, but <laughs> I'm still in the best shape of my life. And I, I started realizing that I was keeping up with them, staying with the same group of guys, and I just wanted to to be able to prove myself. It uh-huh, was very uh-huh. physically and mentally challenging. It's, to this day, it's probably the hardest thing I ever done. And it was such a great experience um, that um. The number kept dropping and dropping from 300 of us, 331 of us, to like now we're down to 150 to the end of week three. And um, they sit you down and you do got to do psycho- uh, uh, psychological evaluations and peer evaluations and everything. And finally, um, the day came and uh, they posted on the whiteboard all our numbers, who the candidates that were going to go up to the actual selection. And my number was up there. Boom. And I looked around, and everybody whose number was up there was this, like, dudes who were, like, badass dudes, like, combat deployments, um, some type of combat-related MOS. And I was one of the very few ones who who, who was not. I didn't have any combat experience, zero deployments, mm-hmm. and I was up there with these guys. But it was such a humbling experience because these guys, they would do anything to help you out. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't care who you were. They did not care where you came from. Especially probably after the second week. You right. find out who's there to mm-hmm. be there and who's not there to be there. Yep. And I remember I saw guys in the pool struggling. They couldn't swim. But they refused to quit. Mm-hmm. And the instructors were doing everything possible to get these guys to quit. I remember being in the pool one time and there's like 20 of us in the little honey. They call it a honeycomb. You jump in the pool. And everybody's like tight together. We're treading water, and a lot of the guys are claustrophobic, mm-hmm. so they're like panicking, you know, yeah, grabbing on each other, grabbing on each other. We're passing bricks. They start with one brick, and then by the end of it, we have like ten bricks. Just you know, you're literally catching one brick and passing it around, treading water, and then people are freaking out. People are dropping like flies, but only the true warriors that want to be there are still, you know, sucking it up. And I, I mean, I was sore. I was tired. Um, I experienced everything that Marines experience. Mm. Like, they put you through that. So finally, I got invited to second phase. And uh, this was up north. 
Um, I had no idea where we were going. We loaded up on the bus. Um, before we get there, they tell us, hey, everybody, close your eyes. Um, you're not allowed to see where we're at. So I said, okay. So we get there, the bus is there, and then when we get out, there's like a yellow line where you kind of jump out and you have to stand in this yellow line. And there's like buildings where you're going to stay at. But we got there like at 3 o'clock in the morning, and right off the bat, it was different instructors. And um, they would transport you in, in these white vans that were covered with like trash bags. You couldn't see anything out of these bags. And the whole time, this, they're playing white music in the background. So they're messing with you mentally and physically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you don't know where you're at. Um, you're carrying your pack with you at all times. And they give you a beacon that has a GPS tracker attached to your to your um your pack and at any time during those last three weeks if you feel like you're gonna quit you just push it and then you're set you're done mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they come get you and you'll never be seen again and uh that first night we go into one of the buildings and right off the back they start first class is like land nav and it's like not basic land nav it's like like advanced land nav and i struggle with land nav mm-hmm. which again Motor T guy. And uh, I tried to pay as much attention as I could. And um, little, little little sleep. We got little sleep during those three weeks. And most of it was a lot of land nav. So they said, hey, you can, they give you eight points. And each point was about a click each. You have to, you know, go find this point. So I remember my first point. Um, I, looked at, I pl- looked at the map, plotted, and I just decided that I was just going to straight that wrecking you know which was a bad idea because <laughs> i learned very quickly that where we were at the terrain features you cannot you can't do that you had to actually read a map um do intersection reception yeah, and mm-hmm. and the instructors were you know driving around trying to see who's you know cheating by you know staying on the roadway you, you couldn't stay the rules were you cannot be visible at any time Anytime, if you were visible by an instructor, you were you were gonna get hit. And um, so that first mistake, I paid hard for it because I was exhausted. It took me forever to find this point, mm-hmm. you know, because I was going down you know hills and ridges and crossing creeks. And then very often you would see other candidates, and they were just like tired, worn out. People were like, "I'm done. I'm quitting. Pushing the beacon button." And then at the end of the night, we would go back to the squad bay we were at. And then, because we had like racks. And then most of the guys that would quit, you would never see them again. Their mattress was gone. And you would never see them again. Just come back and find out you lost some more. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, there was no cell phones. You could have no contact with the outside world. And um, it was land nav after land nav after land nav. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting good at it, you know. Um, I got smart by actually learning my terrain features and I was starting to find these points very fast along with the rest of the guys, right? Then we did a couple of scenarios, situation scenarios. Um, and then we got closer towards the end of selection and uh, we knew we were getting close to the end of selection because we went from like 100 of us to like now we're down to like 50. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, mind you, 331 now to 50. And uh, again, I kept looking around, and there's always the same badass dudes from day one. And only a couple of us were non-combat-related MOS guys. 
And then the last four days, we didn't do anything. We just sat in the squat bay and we ate, you know, went to lunch, came back, dinner, breakfast. And they said, hey, they gave us a book and you had to read, um, read a whole book and, and, and type a uh, book report, a long book report. That's, to me, which is like killing, killing time. Mm-hmm. But they actually bring you, they call you out individually and uh, you sit down with a psychologist and you answer all these questions and they're able to tell you exactly who you are based off those questions, like your personality, personality yep. everything. And then we would do peer evaluation where we all sit down in computers and then we'll look at each other. And then the instructors would say, well, answer these questions and, you know, pretty much grade one another from whether it was teamwork, uh, physical fitness, and everything went into account, whether it's like being the first guy at, at the line waiting to eat. Like somebody saw that as like, oh, no, you, you're not a team player. Uh-huh. You want to eat first, you're uh-huh. not a team player. Mm-hmm. So they would ding you when your peer eval came. Same thing when it was time to go shower. If you were the first guy in, hopping in the shower, oh, yep, you're not a team player. But if you're always, if you kind of hung out towards the back, um, you were helping others first before you helped each other. I mean, they love that. They're like, oh, this guy's a team player. Mm-hmm. You know? I know it's a lot. Well, I hear that it's a lot like that, you know, the layover test. Like, you could be great at everything, you could be the best at everything. But if you don't pass the sleepover test and you're a douchebag, Team guys are going to know it. Right. And not just team guys. Regular infantry is the same thing. You, you know, not the same thing. We don't have the same standards, the same. But when, <clears throat> when you're a selfish dude, everybody knows it. Right. When you're not a team player, everybody knows it. It's no way to hide it. That's right. just you. It's just your personality. And those guys do not vibe well mm-hmm. in that team environment at all. Right. Like That's it, good that they weed that out, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. It was. So then. Um, like one of the final days, we knew that the selection was taking place. And uh, at that point, we were no longer taking instructions from an actual uh, cadre instructor. Everything was from a whiteboard. And uh, it came from child, from lunch. And uh, there was a huge whiteboard. And there was a list with like 31 numbers in there. And we all gather around this you know, whiteboard. We looked at the whiteboard and uh, they said, hey, if your number's in here, gather all your belongings, be outside in the yellow lines within 10 minutes. And uh, my name was, my number was right there, along with the same guys that I thought were badass dudes. So we were all scrambling our stuff as fast as we could. We get to the yellow lines, and we were all, like, nervous looking at each other. It was like, man, did we, did we make it? Because we knew that you could only attend this election one time mm-hmm. um, if you make it all the way to the, to the second phase. You could try it out as many times in the first phase, but if, once you make it to the second phase, you can't come back. Mm-hmm. Because you already know what's, what's going to take part, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it was a colonel came out, and um, he came out, and he's like, a Marine uh, Raider colonel, he's like, man, congrats. You guys are being, you guys are heart select to be Marine Corps or special operators. And we were like, wow. Like, <laughs> you know, it was just like, holy shit, are you serious? And we were all, you know, like hugging each other, happy. You know, a lot of the guys were crying. And then they loaded us in the bus and brought us back to Campbell's room, and we never saw the rest of the guys ever again. That was the group. Yep. Um, they called us heart selects, mm-hmm. which was like, no doubt, like you guys are, you passed everything. You guys demonstrated everything, every capability mm-hmm. that's required to be a Marine Special Operator. And uh, humbling and 
gratefully I was part of one of them, right? Now, do you become an enabler then, or do you become a, a, a CSO and get there, get the MOS? So once you get selected from there, um, I came back to Lejeune, right? And um, they put us to a, an additional two weeks of, like, recovery process because, like, man, my body was worn out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My feet were blistered. You know, I was sore. Um, mm-hmm. Guys had stretch fractures, mm-hmm. you know. So very quickly they put us to, like, our own physical training program, a diet program. They even gave us, like, our own personal insoles for our feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and just we were just recovering from there. Um, so then from there I re-enlisted. So... You had to re-enlist for five years. Yeah, yeah. So that was in end of September, and my EAS was coming up in January. So I re-enlisted for five years, and Marine Corps said, hey, we're going to give you $60,000 to re-enlist, be a critical skill operator, CSO. But then you have to, you you, you can't get it. You have the option. You give it to you now, or we'll give it to you when you graduate the MOS school, which is nine months long. Mm -hmm. And uh, this school... Nine months long. I mean, that's that's a lot of people got hurt during that school. But when I got back, uh, got back to my unit. I guess I was a sergeant, and they sent me to sergeant scores. Um, it's December, and again, that was grueling. I mean, you're a small leader, it's a sergeant. They expect a lot of you. You know, Marine Corps, NCO, PT every day, and that's when I started realizing that my I started having some issues in my lower back. Um, I mean, I was still performing pretty well, but like. I noticed that my back was not, there was something wrong with my body. My back was aching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I reached out to, uh, I wanted to suck it up as much <clears> as I could, but I just it came to a point where, like, man, you got to go see the doctor. Mm-hmm. So I went to see a doctor, and um, they did, like, x-rays and everything, and they're like, oh, you're fine. So I kept pushing, kept pushing, and then I went back to my unit, and then a week before, um checking into the actual ITC course, which is the, the course where you spend nine months to become mm-hmm. an operator, I got in trouble. Uh-oh. So when I was at Sergeant's course, um, we had a group chat um, with my unit, my you know, the guys on my unit. And you know how Marines are on that group chat, man, hmm. memes. Mm-hmm. And um, memes were sent out, you know, and I took – and I take responsibility because I was part of that conversation. And, and, and during that conversation, we were making fun of one of the Marines, like junior Marines, like sister. Mm-hmm. And um, so eventually our gunny found out about it. And uh, he was pissed, man. He was pissed. And he, like, showed the first sergeant. And the first sergeant was pissed. And they went up to the sergeant major. So, of course, because I was a sergeant and then I was the senior guy, right? Man, I got held accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Through the Marines got an NJP for uh, harassment or whatever, and then they gave me a six to one five for condoning it, right? Their behavior. And a week before I checked into ITC, um, the sergeant major of, of Second MRB, he uh, he called the monitor and canceled my orders to school. Man, oh wow, man, that right there what is it was probably the biggest blow, like nut check or like it was the most disappointing. Life moment of my entire life, man. I went home. I was married at the time. And I cried, man. I cried for days, man. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't, I, you know, my dream was crushed. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it was a simple, you know, petty mistake. I took ownership for it. But, like, you just pull that away from me. Like, mm-hmm. 
and I, I begged and begged to be able to go to school, man. And they were like, nope, you're not going. Like, you're done. I'm like, dude, I just went through all this. I re-enlisted for five years. And now you're saying I can't, you know, go to school? Like, you invested all this money in me. So that was the first the first slap in my face that I got from the Marine Corps. And but the Sergeant Major wasn't a Marine Raider, sorry, uh, Sergeant Major. Mm-hmm. He was like an admin Sergeant Major, man. Mm-hmm. So was this meme <clears throat> deserving? Was the meme in the harassment deserving of non-judicial punishment? Was it that was it, it that grotesque? It wasn't, man. They just wanted or to Or did y'all piss point. somebody off? Y'all just pissed somebody we off. We pissed our gunny off. That's what it is. Yeah. We pissed our gunny off, and uh, we all got held accountable, including myself. But I, to me, even though I didn't get injured pee or an injured punch, that was like, was I like got the worst. worst. Right? I got yeah, the worst. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody, they were getting out. I, I just had realistic for five years. So two weeks later, they gave me orders back to the fleet, you know, to a truck company. Um big motor, motor pool company right and i check in there and everybody knows i mean you know how it is rumor spreads around man and everybody before i get there everybody knows who i am what happened you know and you know people are like you know shaking my hand but at the same time they're like man that's that's bullshit you know mm-hmm. and i'm still trying you know i was making you know emailing people calling all my friends are trying to get me back into school and they just that sergeant major was like, nah, man, he's not going. It. Yeah. So I said, whatever. So I gave up that that um that opportunity or so I went back, became a platoon sergeant, and I was in charge of like 40 Marines. But it was rough, man, because going back to a unit where most of the guys don't want to be there, that negativity, man. Mm. That's the most beautiful thing about um Special forces in general, I don't care what branch it is, is that when you look to your left and you look to your right, you know that every single one of them not only wanted to be there, but wanted to be there so bad that mm-hmm. they sacrificed at least or more than what you sacrificed right. to be there. And so you're still always going to have your 10% of bullshit, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. But that I always found solace in that, you know, and then now you're around a bunch of these savages that are like-minded, the meat eaters that you can sharpen your blade off of their blade, yeah. and somebody pulls a rug out from underneath you over a meme. Yep. That sucks, dude. So I took it in the chain. Um, yeah, what else do you? What else could you do? <laughs> I took it in the chain, um, checked into this new unit, and um, my mass aren't at the time. He was like, man, I understand what happened, um, but he's like, you can recover from it. You know, you could be a good Marine. And I did, you know, started, be, you know, started teaching Marines again, leading from example, um, you know, just managing Marines and, and, and being that leader that I wanted to be. Because I wanted to do, tw- I wanted to do it, tw- I wanted to do 20 years. Mm-hmm, I wanted mm-hmm. to retire out of the Marine Corps. That was my dream. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I started, you know, working again, you know, back to the same uh regular civilian you know bs what we call it playing games up early in the morning late nights and um because we were just uh we're part of the second marine division uh we're a big unit we provided a lot of support to the grunt units Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so our trucks our readiness was very low when i checked in man it was like 70 percent and and that meant that we were working from lights to lights yeah you had some work the colonel was very big about us being ready for the second marine division 
So he wanted our readiness to be over 90%. That meant seven tons of Humvees needed to be up and running. And when I got there, I mean, we were low. So mm-hmm. we worked from 0.5 to sometimes 20, 2200. I mean, and most of us were married Marines, man. And this was killing the morale. Mm-hmm. Marines were getting divorced left and right. Uh, Marines getting in trouble, drinking and driving, mm-hmm. just doing stupid things due to the stress and overwork that we were being placed on. And uh, I said, I was, like I said, I was married too, and I started having issues with my marriage. And number one, I got married very young, man. You know, typical mm-hmm. Marine. Mm-hmm. I was 18 mm-hmm. when I got married. I got married behind my mom's back. She found out about it. She was pissed, you know. But, you know, at the time, I thought she was my high school sweetheart. But in reality, I was young. I didn't know what I was doing, you know. Mm-hmm. So Col- Colombian mothers don't have too much patience with all that, do they? Nah, man, no. they're super strict, bro. <laughs> they are super strict. It's either their, high, their way or their highway. Yeah. So started having issues with my wife. Um, we got separated, and um, <clears throat> I started hanging out with guys who did not have the mindset that I had. Mm-hmm. I started hanging out with the Marines who just wanted to get out. And eventually, I started having a bad attitude. And um, that shit's contagious. Oh man, it is, man. I because I love the Marine Corps. It's just as contagious as it is when you're in a room with a bunch of savages. Absolutely. And and you have that that contagious feeling to get better because Mm -hmm. you can see it, and you're like, I can pick that out, and I can make myself better. But it's just as bad if you're inundated with nothing but negativity. Right. So. Started going through that stress of having issues at home, the stress of having uh, being injured, um, seeing every doctor on Camp Lejeune, um, taking part in physical, you know, physical fit um, therapy, um, chiropractor, and everything. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then eventually, um, started to affect my mental health, where I started seeing a, a psychologist once a week. Now, what started to affect it? Well, I feel like I started going down a, a black hole because my dream was crushed. I was injured, and I was at a unit with that I didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. I was working long hours, and then I was having marital, marital problems, right? Just a perfect storm of shit. Yeah, so started going, kind of seeing, like, I feel like I was getting depressed, a lot of anxiety. So... Started seeing a doctor, talking to him about it, and um, finally, um, as I'm going through all this, right, I'm, my physical fitness is just decreasing, man. And um, are you saying you're getting fat, or are you just saying that you're getting you're depressed and you're not about your regular workout regimen? Yeah, like the lack, my morale went down, my energy levels went down, and I didn't want to be. Um, well, I was hurting number one, and number two. Um, I feel like my purpose was taken away. Mm. So finally, you know, after seeing all these doctors for like a year, year and a half, and, you know, doctors said, hey, man, uh, you have some herniated discs in your lower back. And uh, you're too young to, to surgery. I was 23 at the time, 23. Uh, you're too young, man. You're going to have to adapt with it, adapt and live with it forever. Because um, if we cut your back, I mean, we can't really guarantee, you know, like, I refuse to cut your back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so I'm like, what do I do? He's like, just that, like, stay in shape, be active, and you'll learn to learn live with it pretty much. 
So, it, I mean, it was painful, man. And finally, after going through that, <clears throat> well, before that, before I got medically retired. So, at the time, the Marine Corps was very strict about, you know, you being married and separated and, and, and having another relationship. Mm-hmm. So, as a human being, you know, me and my wife were separated, living in different households. Um, I started dating another Marine, right? And she was a staff sergeant. I was a sergeant. Mm-hmm. Different unit, right? And um, my ex-wife found out about it, right? And she called my first sergeant. First sergeant. Man, and that was a big storm. Big storm. Um, he came down and he's like, made a huge deal out of it, you know. I got kicked out out of my own place. Um, had a, She got everything, right? So I'm like, whatever. And I was miserable, you know, started drinking and, and just that negativity, right? Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting NGP, man. I got a battalion-level NGP as a sergeant um, for dating another Marine, even though I was separated. And and it's crazy because now... They don't care. All that's gone. Like, you could do whatever you want. As long as you're separated, they don't care. Mm-hmm. Like, some of the Marines, so many good Marines got in trouble, like, for that. Because mm-hmm. their ex-wife will call. Mm-hmm. And, and they knew that they could do that. And they'll call your command. Call your and, command, get you to write them, write them some checks. Bro, and they'll, you know, pretty much hold you by the boss. You're like, oh, if you don't do this, I'm going to call your command. Mm-hmm. So, like, my first sergeant... He just he was just tired of it, you know, and so I got in JP whatever battalion level, and uh, I, you know, I was getting JP with dudes that were doing stupid shit like drinking and driving, drugs, you know, popping on, on you know. I was like, man, this is not me. Like, so they restricted me to the barracks for fifty two days, man. Oh my goodness, fifty two days. I kept my rank. Um, my, my, actually, my my master, I went up there and he bat for me. You know, the colonel who NGP me is like, all right, 52 days in restriction. You're keeping everything else. But then I couldn't drive nowhere. I couldn't go to the gym. I had to, I had to walk everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it was cold. Uh, this is in the middle of, uh, towards the winter of 2017. Mm-hmm. So I recovered from that, bounced back from that, and then uh, went back, became a platoon leader, a platoon sergeant again. And I was doing really well, man. Like, like... My, my chain of command started noticing that I was, you know, I, I was picking, I picked myself up from that black hole that I was at. Mm-hmm. But the injury was still there. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> kept seeing different doctors and different doctors. And then finally, the decision was made where I was placed in Limdu, where, you know, limited duties, you can't, you can't do, you can't PT, you can't do anything. You can't just, you're just there, right? Mm-hmm. Which sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I was placed in Limdu for six months and then, uh, they said, hey, we're going to put you in a, in a medical board. Uh, we're going to, you know, the Marine Corps is going to go up. Uh, your package is going to go up to D.C. And they're going to determine whether we'll keep you fit with your duty. Fit, you're fit for duty or you're not fit for duty. Mm-hmm. And this is this is deriving from the herniated discs. Correct. Okay. And then the depression mm-hmm. that came with that, too, from actually not <clears throat> not being able to do what I wanted to do, obviously. Mm-hmm. So... The board came back and said I was um, going to get medically retired for my injuries, right? And um, they gave me like 30 days to check out mm-hmm. and get out of the Marine Corps. So, got out December 30, 2018. And um, 
obviously I was like, man, this is not what I wanted, but this is how it's going to be. So I had to accept it, right? Yeah, and I would say at least they took care of you. Like, yeah. there's a lot of people that got injured in the Marine Corps that didn't get boarded ever mm -hmm. because of one reason or another, but a lot of times bad command structures. Yeah. Uh, other times um, they didn't speak up for themselves mm -hmm. uh, until things got bad, you know, and then they get out or maybe they're ignorant, you know. Uh, they don't know the ways of Marine Corps or, God forbid, it happens when they're E3 or below and nobody really gives, you know, now they're better about it, but yeah. when we were all coming up, they didn't really care about that, you know. Drink water, yeah. Eat ibuprofen, change your socks, and that's kind of like the and advice. then go to war. Yeah, so at least you, mm -hmm. you know, got you know a, a fig a fig leaf extended to you, you know. Yeah, so I got boarded um, for three years. Got out uh, medically retired temporarily for three years, right? So that was in the end of uh, December 2018. So now I'm like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. I started thinking, what do I do? I mean, I have a trade that I learned from the Marine Corps where I could make pretty good money in the civilian side. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't have a purpose of mm -hmm. serving because all I wanted to do was serve for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I remember typing up my resume and, and just start, started looking for jobs. I went to a uh, big hiring event here in Jacksonville. And I mean, uh, John Deere was there. Cat was out there. And uh, you know, I told them who I was, my experience in the Marine Corps, a diesel mechanic for six years. And they were like, man, come on over. We're we hire you on the spot. You get everything. Like, we'll fly you to this, you know, Midwest, you'll train. School and stuff, yeah. And it was like instantly, like they wanted to hire me. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to be, a, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a mechanic, but I don't want to, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. like, so... Then I started thinking back of my childhood, how I wanted to be a cop, mm -hmm. right? And I started doing some research, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to do it. Why not, right? So I went to my local community college, and I uh, signed up for classes for the for the next uh, basic law enforcement training, mm -hmm. which was starting a week after I got out. Perfect. Perfect time, right? Like it was supposed to happen. So I joined. I was in class. I think it was like 25 of us, mostly prior Marines. Mm -hmm. um, it, there was even a first sergeant there, man, retired first sergeant, badass dude. He wanted to be a cop, and he was there. We were all there. We went through it. It was a pretty, pretty grueling program. Um, um, here in Jacksonville, Coastal is either is known for being either the, the number one or the number two in the state, you know, for training cops. Wow. So, That's Coastal Carolina Community College in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Just catch people up. Correct. Yes. They have a really good program. Um, so went through the whole program and um, started putting applications to local police departments. Because at the time, back in 2019 is when I went. I mean, law enforcement was a thing. Like, police departments were full. It was hard to get in. With your local police department, it was very hard. It's just before COVID and right. and the whole world fell apart. Yeah, mm -hmm. Roger. Everything was great, so people were retiring. So you, if they will hire you, you have to be a pretty much a correctional officer. They'll put you in the jail. Yep. And you have to work your way up to be able to hit the streets. Yep. So, I got hired by uh, one of the sheriff's offices um, right here in Duplin County, very rural uh, county. And they gave me the opportunity to come be on patrol. 
So like straight off, straight off. Okay, like five of us took it, and all Marine veterans, man, we all took the opportunity. Duplin's in yeah. good hands, huh? Rural, you rural, say. yeah, rural county, man. Most of the guys ended up going to like Jacksonville or Onslow, but they had to, you know, um, work their way up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So started working in Duplin, you know, I had a, and then my first, my training officer, man, one of my good friends to this day, Steve Snyder, shout out to him, mm-hmm. um, Marine Corps veteran, like, this guy, I didn't know, when I met him, I didn't know how to, how to take him, man. He was just serious. Like, I know he was a Marine, but he was just a serious guy. I didn't know. And he was a sergeant, so I had to respect him, you know, coming from that military background. But this guy, he was going to be the one that was going to teach me how to survive in the streets. Because mm-hmm. you go to police academy, they're going to teach you the black and white, the books. They're not going to teach you how to survive in the streets and how to get home every day. Mm-hmm. So Snyder, Sergeant Snyder, he's the one who brought me along. And pretty much when I got in his car, man, he was very serious. Like, I didn't know what to say. Like, I wanted to break the ice. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't. So the first thing I said, I said, were you in the, Marine, in the military? He's like, yeah, I was in the Marine back in the 90s. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, I was in the Marine too, sir, you know. So he's like, well, I don't care. Just, I'm going to teach you how to survive and how to get home, right? And I, I will never forget this. The worst, the first thing he said to me was, "You are always going to approach a situation in a dominant manner. Everything you do in law enforcement, make sure you're in a dominant stance." Mm-hmm. And to this day, I'm never going to forget that. And eventually, we started, you know, getting along more, and he started kind of easing off and started seeing the good side of him, the funny side of him. He was very, very fun, dude. Um, so he trained me all the way up to um, when I got released. But Snyder was he's a very, he's a great shot, man. Great shooter. I mean, he was part of the SWAT team at Duplin. And we talk about it, and I would go out on my day off to his house. He's got a range on 25 acres. And he's a firearms instructor, and he would coach me, like, how to get better. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. do this, you know. So he was like my, my mentor. I looked up to him. That was like the first person in law enforcement that I wanted to be like mm-hmm. him. We got along great. Um, I knew that if I was in a situation and I heard his number come out of the ra- on the radio to, to come back me up, I was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I knew he felt the same way about me because mm-hmm. he trained me. Mm-hmm. So um, I worked there, and then nine months in, um, the opportunity for uh, to join the SWAT team came up. Selection came up, right? But they most departments have a requirement where you have to be at least two or three years in the department yep. before you could actually even try out. Sure. However, they they waived they made an exception a section, right? They said, well, if you have military service, four years in military service or anything combat related, um, we'll make an exception. You. Six months, we'll let you in. We'll let you try out. Mm-hmm. So I had six months. So I tried out. I killed him, man. I was in physical shape, and I was already, I was training with Snyder. Shooting already, yeah. Shooting good because he was coaching me. He was part of the team, and he was pretty much telling me, hey, this is what you need to improve. So I killed it, got selected, right? And uh, I was the junior guy on the team. Most most guys on the team been on the team for 
five to ten years, yeah, you know, yeah. senior detectives, uh, investigators, patrol officers. But I was hungry, man. I was hungry. I found my purpose again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it was just like new I, new life. Yeah, yeah. Like I left everything behind. You know, like all the bad experiences, everything that I, all my mistakes. They were all, you know, everything was in the past. Now this is my my future, my present. I was loving it, you know. And um, started training and training, and then um, started getting going out the call-outs with the guys, teams, and um, I'm nine months in. Well, first of all, let me say that a lot of officers nowadays um, they they can go to a whole career whether it's 20 to 30 years here in North Carolina it's 30 years of law enforcement before you can retire mm-hmm. up north is about 20 years and you can retire so I was nine months in and I was involved in the first officer involved shooting in nine months and this change as a SWAT team member yeah as okay. a SWAT team member okay uh th- that changed everything um Man, I, I was not expecting that. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the situation? Nine months in, rookie officer, uh, patrol deputy, uh, brand new guy on the team. Haven't even been to basic SWAT school at the time. Mm-hmm. But due to my experience in the military and you know training with my, my FTO, my sergeant, I had the basic knowledge mm-hmm. of what being on a team was. Mm-hmm. And um, so... It's a weekend, um, so law enforcement work two weeks on, two weeks off, uh, day shift or night shift, we rotate. Or some agencies do one month on day shift, one month off night shift. Uh, I was on night shift rotation that weekend, so mm-hmm. it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it was a Friday, um, I worked Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning, I think it was a Sunday. Um, May 9th, 2020. Yeah, May 9th. <clears throat> I woke up around 2 p.m. Uh, um, normal routine, you know, get up, eat, go to the gym, work out, get ready for work. Mm-hmm. And we work 12-hour shifts. So 6.30 a.m. to 6.30, uh, 6.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. Now, if I may. What are you doing in that 12 hours? You're not on the beat. Are you like quick reaction force, SWAT, quick reaction force, waiting for a call? What are you doing for those 12 hours? Uh, 12 hours, patrol deputy answering the calls for service. Oh, so you're in a car? Yeah. Okay, check. Yeah, you're in a patrol vehicle. You're answering calls for service, going, you know, taking reports for larcenies, um, B&Es, breaking enterings, or anything. Domestics, whatever come up. Yeah, Services, traffic stops, you name it, right? Um. The SWAT team is a part-time gig where, you know, it's an additional collateral, uh, you know, responsibility. It's not mm-hmm. a full-time. Mm-hmm. There's very few agencies in North Carolina that have a full-time SWAT team. Check. Like Raleigh being one of them. Um, and there's all the other couple agencies that have full-time SWAT teams. So most of us are just part-time gigs. Check. So we train about once a month. Um, and that's because our budget training budget it was, it was not it's not the best yep. you know it's very yep. limited so but we do we make we make it work from what we have mm-hmm. we, we get the job done right so woke up that sunday morning on uh, sunday afternoon got ready you know go to the gym and um we communicate through our group chat and um our team commander 
um, sends out a, a text message. Say, hey, all SWAT team members be on standby. We have a barricade of sus- uh, subject incident. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, got all my gear ready, which keep all your gear, you know, your... your like a go kit. Yeah, your go kit, your, your flak, your, mm-hmm. um, your plate carrier, your helmet, gas mask, your comms, rifle, your duty belt, everything, right? Uniform. So I, I kept always keep everything ready in my vehicle, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. park my vehicle in the garage. So they were like, all right, man, we're, we're, we need you guys up here. Okay. So I got ready very quick and I uh, was single at the time, just me and my dog and uh, walked over to my neighbor's house, uh, who's also a, 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 a cop deputy, um, good friend of mine, Eric Smith. And I walked over next door and said, hey, man, um, I got to go. Can you please watch my dog? You know, my dog is my everything, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, sure, man. I, come on, bring him over. So I leave. And then as I'm on the way there, um, the radio, man, it's, it's crazy on the radio traffic, mm-hmm. hitting what's going on. So the incident was um, there was a gentleman that owned the house. And uh, he had invited... Um, somebody over for a specific time period of time and then somehow along the way that 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 turned out to be a, a situation where the owner of the house didn't want the individual in the house anymore mm-hmm. but um that individual the suspect um he was under the influence of drugs and um pretty much threatened the homeowner or, or the individual who lived in the home to um hey if 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 you don't let me stay here, I'm gonna kill you. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I, he apparently he was armed. He, you know, he told him that he was armed and and that he had um, homemade IDs at the house, and so the reaction, the human reaction was, hey, I'm gonna call the cops, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, so he called the cops, and uh, responding deputies get there and they start to you know assess the situation and. You know, they get all the information that, yeah, we have a, a suspect who uh, who took somebody hostage. The victim was able to get out, and now he's barricaded in the home. Um, but backtrack, the individual who was in the home, um, I never dealt with him before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really knew who he was, never had any interactions with him on the streets because, you know, I was fresh. I was, you know, I was, I was a rookie officer. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> on the way there, you know, I hear people, officers who are already on scene, saying, "Hey, man, this, this guy's is, is throwing homemade IDs out of the windows," and and you know everybody's like, "No, everybody's setting up a perimeter," and um, I hear team members, you know, because it's a Sunday, you know, Sunday, yeah. springtime, everybody's with their families, you know, team members are like, "All right, man, we're in wrap," you know, everybody's you know pretty much getting there. It's about forty-five minute drive from my house. So I'm driving as fast as I can, safely, obviously. And um, I'm one of the first team members to get on scene. And uh, my team commander was already on scene. And he's pretty much trying to get everything ready, like coming up with a, a plan mm-hmm. to, you know, be able to uh, handle the situation safely. And I get there. Um, good friend of mine, he's there. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to say any names right now because um, even though – this is over with now. Um, there's still some civil li- liability that's ongoing, mm-hmm, so I'm going to mm-hmm. keep it very limited as far as name, you know. Sure, please. But 
I try to go as much depth as I can. So when I get there, it's a small, uh, small town in the north northern of the county. And when I got there, I was one of the first ones. So I got suited up real quick, put my whole kit on. Um, I had my AR-15 out, my Glock, uh, 9mm, G45s at the time. And you know, I had everything ready, comms, gas mask. And, you know, everything is going great. You know, we're coordinating the whole uh, fire. It's, it's evacuating houses next door to this house. We're blocking intersections. You know, people are being evacuated because it's a, it's a bar barricaded sus uh, mm -hmm. subject situation. And this situation's, um, that's, that was my first one, man. I'd never done anything like this before. <laughs> sure. So I'm just like taking orders and doing anything for my team commander. You know, what do sure. you want to do? Mm -hmm. So he's like, hey, man, just post up here, put your car here, and uh, just kind of watch me or, 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 or take cover, you know? So I'm like, I got my AR-15 out, and I'm just kind of like looking through my, you know, my optic and just making sure, you know, that this dude doesn't come out with a gun. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we're just waiting for the team members to get there. Everybody get there, and then eventually we're kind of coordinating a plan of what we're gonna do. And um, <clears throat> this situation was a huge learning experience from everybody because after the fact we learned that you know there's so many things that we could have done better mm. that we should have done. But you know when you're in the situation at the time and your adrenaline is pumping, you're just trying to you know you're trying to make it work. And then when you have People, when you have different people trying to put in input at the same time, it creates chaos. Sure. And, and, and you know, now, looking back at it, we know that, hey, we have team member, you're, you're the team commander, and, and that's the team member who's going to execute the mission, the plan, and we're going to listen to him, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, team commander, you know, develops the plan that, hey, we know, we're going to try to talk to this man and um, get him out of the house and negotiate with him. So, I remember one thing that kind of struck, that made me think was when the individual, the suspect who was in the house, he said, I just want to talk to my son. Like, like I'm ready to die, but I want to talk to my son. Mm -hmm. That was like a red flag to me because, you know, the dude already had his, his mind made up. Mm -hmm. Like, he was willing to, you know, hurt himself and hurt us. And I could hear him yelling at us from the from the house, you know, from the inside. He was, you know, hey, come in here. I'm gonna kill every single one of you guys. Like I'm not, I'm ready to die today, but I'm not gonna do it alone. And I was nervous, man. I mean, we're all nervous. Yeah. We haven't had a situation like this, especially me being my, one of my first situations. All the way up to the point, I had executed some search warrants with the team, but I was usually like towards the back of the stack. It was nothing to this extent, you know. Sure. So, team commander and everybody's trying to negotiate with this guy, you know, trying to give him a phone, trying to get him to come out peacefully out of the house as we, you know, we have a, per a perimeter set up. Sure. Um, we have, you know, fire, EMS on scene, everybody. And, you know, at that time, time is in our hands. Mm -hmm. And then we quickly, you know, after the fact, we realized, man, in a situation like this, time, time, time is in baby. our hands. But given the fact that, you know, we were there, we kind of wanted to rush it. You felt like you didn't have time. Right. We just wanted to get to the point of it, end it. And, now, and now it, I want to get to the rest of this, but I kind of want to, you said something that was interesting to me. You said, um, looking back, there were a lot of people offering input that was causing chaos and you have a leader. Yeah. Can you dive into that? Who, who, who is, 
you know, who's influencing your team commander uh, at this point, uh, adding chaos? So, you know how the whole saying goes, too many chiefs, not enough Indians? Sure. Okay, so perfect example. Um, a lot of the senior operators on the team were like, hey, man, we need to do this. Let's do this. Let's try this approach. Um, and that was kind of like creating chaos because our team commander is essentially who's the one who's responsible for what we do. So he, he has a situation at hand. He brings it up to the hire, whether there's the sheriff, police chief, whatever. And then they make the, the final call. Hey, yes, hit the house, mm-hmm. go in the house. So he, he came up with a plan. Um, and the plan was, hey, we're going we're gonna to have a perimeter team and an entry team. Because I was one of the first ones on scene and I was hungry. Um, I was assigned as the entry one of you know one of the entry members but not only the entry member i was going to be the first guy point man up <laughs> point man so we, we call it the bunk in law enforcement we call it the bunker team the bunker man which is the shield man mm-hmm. you know you have a um a shield which you know you're is bulletproof but it's not rated for like rifle or anything like right, that right right you know mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. small arms mm-hmm. so my buddy good friend of mine is ben parish man i love him to death uh, army veteran uh, he essentially was the one who recruited me to come work for Deep One. And uh, to this day, we have a great relationship. Um, I call him anytime and, and we talk. So he gave me the shield and he trusted me as his team member to be able to go into the house and get the job done. Mm-hmm. And I trusted him to have my back. And I also trusted the team members to have my back. Sure. And, you know, like I said at the time, I was single, I didn't have any kids. Uh, kids. Um, so I didn't really, I didn't want to disappoint my team. So he gave me the shield to say, Hey Drago, you're going to go in there. You're going to be the first one in the house and we're going to go home. I said, cool. So <clears throat> team commander goes, we started to negotiate with the guy. He's still refusing. He's, um, he just very angry man making threats towards us. Um, saying, Hey, anybody comes in this house, you're going to, you're going to die. Like I'm ready to die and you will die too. So, John, are you are you stacked at this point when he's yelling still? So no, I'm, we're not stacked yet. We're like, are you like megaphoning it? Yeah, we're using our our, our, our vehicle, um, our radio to mm-hmm. you know our vehicle to mm-hmm. like, kind of give him commands and stuff. Mm-hmm. But finally, you know, our team commander who came up with the plan said, "Hey, we're gonna have a perimeter <laughs> team, entry team. Perimeter team will hold hold around the house, and entry team will stack up, stack up in the house, mm-hmm. one of the firewalls on the right." And we're just gonna kind of hold it there, and we're gonna wait. So we did, and um, in this situation, our team commander uh, he cut the power to the house, and and that's an advantage to us because sure. you know we can go in there and you know he, he's not gonna know where we're at. But it's also a disadvantage to us because we're not familiar with the house. Uh, we don't know how many rooms, how many bedrooms. And mind you, this is my first actual situation. So I'm I'm holding there. I got the rest of the team behind me. I got like six guys behind me. I got the shield. Um, I passed my AR-15 back to one another member, and um, and I'm going with the pistol. Yeah, I'm going with my Glock. Pistol and shield. Yeah, Glock. And the decision was made that we're going to deploy gas into the house. Mm -hmm. So we started pumping gas, CS gas, into this house. And this house was not a big house, about 800 square foot. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't a big house, but we pumped about seven to eight canisters of cs gas which is a lot Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. lot of gas and just trying to flush him right Mm -hmm, trying Mm -hmm. to flush him trying to get him out peacefully 
But this guy was under the influence. Uh, so it didn't take any effect on him. You know, he just wow. he actually made it worse because he got angrier and angrier. And I could hear him through the walls just getting angrier. And, man, I was nervous. I was scared. And I know everybody behind me was feeling the same way. But at the time, we didn't want to tell each other, hey, man, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not what we do. And so we pumped gas. And I started looking around. And I started realizing that most of my team members were not ready for the situation at hand. And when I say ready, because it was a Sunday, right, most of the guys came from, you know, family events. You know, I saw one of, one of the team members, he was wearing, like, a T-shirt and shorts, had a handgun and, and a vest. Um, you know, a couple of us couple of us had gas masks. Some of them didn't have any. We were just not prepared for the situation, which, again, later on, we, re, we, we went back and we, we picked it and we realized everything that we did wrong, what could have been better, and how in the future we will handle things need to be adjusted right yeah so we waited and waited and nothing like this guy will not come out so finally team commander uh makes contact with you know with hire and they gave us the green light to make entry into the house Mm -hmm. so the house uh had a side door and a front door so we're gonna make entry to the side door so i go up with my shield um, we give the, the, you know, the bunker man or the, sh- the, the ram guy, we give the signal for him to come and, and hit the door. So he came up, uh, one of my good friends hit the door a couple times and, uh, it just would not open. It was barricaded. So the guy had barricaded himself inside of the house and placed furniture, heavy furniture in all the doors. So after, you know, trying to hit that door multiple times, it became a felt entry. So at that point, we had to use the alternate route, which was the front door of the house. So we went around the front door of the house, and same thing. Breacher was trying to breach the door. And our breacher's a big dude, you know, 250-pound mm. strong guy. Mm-hmm. And these doors were not opening. So, man, we started to get frustrated. The frustration started to set in within the team members. <clears throat> like, man, we need to get in here, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So somehow our team member ended up um, – securing uh, or, or finding an extra key to the side door. Like, he got on the phone and made a phone call. I don't know exactly what happened, but he found a key, a spare key, and he went up there and unlocked the door. And when he unlocked it, the breacher came back up in and hit it a couple times, and the door just, boom, and you know, off the hinges. And I was wearing a, shield, uh, wearing a gas mask, right? Helmet, comms, full kit. I got a shield in front of me. And I'm 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 looking through a viewport, which is a small viewport, and the gas is just pouring out of the house. Mind you, there's no light to the house; it's just gas, mm-hmm. very dark, um, very, you know, challenging. So, but at that point, I had no time. I couldn't I couldn't think. I couldn't just sit there in the fatal funnel, like we call it. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you got to go in, because you know you sit there in the fatal funnel. That's you, dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I made entry into the side door, which led through the kitchen. Um, first one in, small kitchen, uh, cleared it real quick, and then it was a straight hallway. And then I remember looking up the straight hallway, everybody's behind me, and then we were screaming, sheriff's office, sheriff's office, you know, search warrant, whatever, come out. Um, and I look straight, there's a door straight ahead of me, a door to the left, and a door to the right. 
all doors are closed, right? So two team members go to the left, and uh, my team commander grabs me. He said, hey, Drago, we're going straight ahead. So um, we're going in, and uh, I clear, uh, we go in that room. We cleared it real quick, look under the bed. There's nothing there, nobody there. Mm-hmm. Same thing on the left, there's nothing there. So at that point, we knew that there was only one place left where we needed to look, which was the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And we knew he was in there because we could hear him. So he's like hacking or coughing or no, still he was yelling at you? Yelling, coughing, and just angry, man, you know. But at that point, everybody who's in the house, it was maybe like four or five of us. Um, so it was only two of us who were wearing a gas mask. And uh, my team commander wasn't wearing one. But everybody else who wasn't wearing one started to take the effects of CS gas. Yeah. And I mean, if you guys been around CS oh, gas, yeah. it sucks. It's not fun. <clears throat> so everybody's running out of that house. Mm-hmm. You know, multiple team members run out of the house. And then at that point, I just, just me and my team commander sitting in front of that bathroom door. And I'm breathing through, you know, gas mask. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm holding that shield as strong as I could with my handgun out. I'm ready for any situation, right? So I called the breacher. I began to say, hey, bring that ram. So one of my friends, good friends of mine, comes in with the ram and hits that door uh, multiple times. And I think on like the third time, the door finally splits in half. <laughs> and when it split in half, man, <laughs> I remember seeing all that gas coming out and, um, I saw a big white angry man with a long <laughs> beard. He he wasn't wearing a shirt. He was tatted up, like covering tattoos, like and it was like seeing the devil himself, man. Did he come out at you? He rushed you through that him? door. Mm-hmm. He rushed through the door, pinned my team commander to the floor, and was trying to, you know, grab his firearm. So when we go to police academy, they teach us like, hey, if somebody's ever trying to grab your your sidearm, your firearm, you pin yourself to that floor and you protect that firearm no matter what. Right. So he that's exactly what he did. He fell to the ground, pinned it, and I'm right there holding that shield, giving him verbal commands. Hey, stop moving. You, you know, show me hands. And um, he turns his attention attention towards me, and we made eye contact, and it was just like a split of a second. And I'm out here holding that gun out, shield, you know, and he um he reaches out for my my hand my, my handgun. Big dude, I mean he was like six three, probably twice my size, man. He reaches out. And at that time I had a split of a second to make the decision. Because I knew um, like I said, I was we're carrying uh G forty fives, uh seventeen seventeen in the magazine, one in the chamber. I'm correct, or maybe 16 in the magazine, one in the chamber. But I knew that if he would have grabbed my handgun, he probably would have killed me, my team commander, and anybody else behind me. Mm-hmm. So I perceived it as a huge threat, man. When he tried to, somebody tries to reach for a gun, you know. So when he tried to grab my barrel, um, I shot him three times. Uh, shot him in the chest. He fell. Um, I dropped my shield. And um, he got up, he got up, you know, and I double tapped him again. And he fell again. And then at that point, I didn't even have time to even holster my gun. I remember just putting it on, on top of like a little kitchen table that was like nearby and just put it there. And I just jumped on top of him and I started wrestling him. And, you know, try to get him in handcuffs. And, and very quickly, I realized that I was covering blood. And, and... <clears throat> 
I was able to get him in handcuffs. My friend comes in, and at that point, it, it goes from like, okay, well, now we have to. I have to give this guy. I have to render aid. Aid. Like, yeah, he he he, he might have a bad intention towards me, and, and the rest of us. But now it goes from using deadly force to now I have to save his life. Mm-hmm. So you flip you flip that switch very fast, right? So we got him out. We drug him out to the side door again, where my team commander was already. Somebody went and got him and, and brought him outside, and, and they they thought that he, that my team commander was shot. The rest mm-hmm. of the team because mm-hmm. it was just me and him. So they're they're stripping him, you know, cutting his clothes, looking for for bullet holes. And um, right away, the EMS was right on scene, and they mm-hmm. start working on the suspect. And um, I went up to my team commander, and I will never forget this man. I look at him dead in the eye, and I say, "Man, I promise you, I didn't shoot you." Like I reassured him that. I didn't, I didn't shoot him because he was like calling my wife, you know. He wasn't hit, was he? No, thankfully he wasn't hit. Um, so we moved him. And um, as soon as after I finished saying that, I uh, I turned around and EMS was like, man, the suspect is dead. Big dude, I mean, covering blood. So he went from using deadly force to now is like, hey, this is a crime scene. Mm-hmm. So... Right away, you know, every time, anytime an officer is involved in any type of shooting, the first thing is like you need to secure a firearm, whether it's an AR-15, mm-hmm, shotgun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, one of the supervisors came, secured my handgun, and um, the team just sat me down. They stripped me down, all my gear, and like, man, I still remember it. It was like yesterday, you know. My heart was through the roof, blood pressure rising up. That adrenaline, man, it's huge adrenaline oh, dump. And everybody were just like checking each other, making sure nobody was hit. And the first thing I wanted, I, I told my buddy Ben, I said, man, give me a cigarette, please. <laughs> give me a cigarette. And I smoked that cigarette, and it was like a huge, you know, whew, right? So from there, Ben was like, all right, man, you're coming with me. He took me under his wing. And he grabbed me and he took me to a local fire department. And that's where he gave me a coat, a Coke. I drank that Coke. And then he was like, are you good? I said, yeah, I'm good. He's like, I said, from now on, you're gonna, I'm going to be with you. You're not going to talk to nobody. You're going to, I'm going to be with you the whole time. Mm-hmm. Man, and that was huge to me because, you know, Ben, He's a senior law enforcement officer, man. He's an army. Um, he's coming up to retirement here soon. He's still part of the team. And uh, for somebody like him to take me under his wing after a critical incident meant mm-hmm. a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And um, first thing he said, you need to call your mom. Because mm-hmm. mind you, I was single. Um, so he called my mom. And he talked to my mother and told my mother that, hey, John, John is okay. He's not hurt. We just had an incident. He's going to be okay. You know, that meant a lot to me because he reassured my family that I was okay. Uh So from there, he put me in his his truck and I secured all my gear in my my work vehicle, my truck car. And then I never went went back to that crime scene again. Uh I went down to the hospital and... um, My girlfriend, 
or the girlfriend, you know, the girl that me were talking at the time, she worked, she worked at an ER where I showed up. She was working, man. Classic. And, um, yeah. how'd, and, that, how'd that go? So I walked in, man, and I'm, <laughs> I'm covered in blood. My 5'11s, man, are covered in blood, right? And um, she, they knew that there was an officer that was gonna, there was arriving to the hospital that had been involved in, involved in the shooting. They just didn't know who, that it was me. Mm-hmm. So I mean, her look and her face, man, she was, she was like, wow, you know. I know she was worried about me. <laughs> I so, imagine. <laughs> yeah. So I get checked by the doctor, and you know, they check my vitals, and he's like, man, you need your blood pressure's through the roof, man. And I say, well, yeah, I was just involved in the critical incident. You know, what'd you expect? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so from there, I get discharged, man. And um, Ben is like, hey, we got to meet the sheriff. Like, he wants to talk to you. So he drives me up. We meet the sheriff. And he's like, hey, young man, good job, man. You're, you're a bulldog. You, you're a hero. You, you protect your team. Like, I'm proud of you. Like. We will stand with you the whole time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's big. Man, talk about huge uh, relief, man. Yeah, because you don't know what they're going to do to you and what they're <clears> going <throat> to say and what's going to go clear and am I going to keep my job and is there going to be a civil suit? I mean, there's a million things, right? Right. A million emotions. Oh, man. So, and not to mention you just killed a human being. And that's, right. a, that's not a – I don't give a shit who you are and what your profession is. There's things that come with that, regardless of if it was clean, mm-hmm. uh, at war, at home, whatever. You kill somebody else and you're up and on it. That's that's different. It's right. different. So, <clears throat> getting back in the truck with Ben, and um, got about another 30 minutes drive back to my house. He drives me home. He didn't even allow me to drive, man. Sure. And um, I get to my house, <laughs> and I told you in the beginning how I left my dog with my neighbor, Eric. Well, Eric's a great deputy, man. Former Marine, retired Marine as well. And me and him, you know, drinking drinking beer together all the time and talking about law enforcement. And he would give me advice all the time. So when I was walking up to his house, he had a, a glass door. And I walked up to the glass door, and he was, he was in the couch hanging out with his wife and kids. And he saw me through the glass door. Covered, now, are you still covered in blood? Covered in blood. <laughs> And he, it's not funny. It isn't, but it is. Yeah, he like instantly, he looked at his wife and kids and said, go, go, go somewhere else. He knew. Yeah. He's like, are you okay? I said, yes. He's like, I don't want to know any details. I just want to make sure that you're okay. He gave me a hug. Got my dog, went back to my house. And Ben standing outside of my room as I'm taking a shower, man. And I got in the shower and I'm, and I'm showering and taking all that blood off me and it was that at that point is when it hit me, man. When I was in the shower, that I realized that I, you know I just had obviously took somebody else's and other human being's life, but then I realized why. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I said, wow, you know, like I was really lucky, you know, all the training that I learned from the military, from the police academy, from my field training officer Snyder, mm-hmm. you know, I made all, all that kicked in in just a matter of seconds. And I became really grateful at that point because looking back at it, you know, if he would have took my gun, I would not be here right now, mm-hmm. you know. And probably not your training officer either. Right. So got out of the shower and, uh, you know, Ben collected all my, 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 my bloody clothes because of his evidence. And uh, he reassured me that I was going to be good. 
and um, he had, you know, they went back to the crime scene and they were out there all night, man. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the bomb tech, the bomb squad ended up going out there, and um, anytime during an investigation like that, um, any officer involved, they have to be interviewed by uh, the investigating, you know, agency, which in North Carolina is the State Bureau of Investigation. Yep. Who handles handles all officer involved shootings? But um, everybody that day, they were interviewed by them, and um, you know. I was the only one who was an interview by the by the SBI that day. <clears throat> and the reason why is because when you go through a critical event, you kind of forget stuff. Sure. You kind of So I went to sleep, man. I slept that I left I slept so good that night. The next morning I woke up and I was like remembering things. Just little minor details about the incident. Sure. So I took the next 2 days off. Um, me and my girlfriend went up to a friend's house near the beach, and we stayed out there, man. And my phone was ringing off the hook, man. <clears throat> like I had a work phone, and I just wanted to toss it in the water, man, because it just kept blowing up. Everybody was calling me, officers who I never even worked with, senior officers, man, retired officers. They were calling me, like checking on me. Hey, man, are you good? We heard about you. Like uh-huh. we're still like thankful man like you did something big like you don't even understand and my sheriff called me multiple times that weekend and, and everybody reassured me that I was going to be good so on the fourth day I met with the SBI and <clears throat> the agent you know sat me down and you know it's a criminal investigation so they, they record you and they, they read you your Miranda rights man sure. And it's one thing, being a law enforcement officer, when you read a suspect, their Miranda rights, it's different. But when you're on the other side of the table, when they're reading them to you, oh, man, that's scary. That's a scary feeling. Hmm. But this agent, you know, which I'm very close to today, we became really good friends. We text all the time. Very professional. Um, He read my rights, and, you know, he he told me why I was there. And... um, just ask me about 200 questions, man, <laughs> in different manners. And obviously, they want to know what happened. They want to know your point. They already know the answer. Mm-hmm. They already know the puzzle. You're just the final piece to the puzzle. Um, and, I, you know, I told them what happened from when I got there, when I woke up that day, man, all the way till I got home. And they want to know everything in detail. So at that point, um, I was out of work for about two weeks. Paid or paid, yeah, yeah paid, yeah, yeah. Um, but I was also a full-time student, so when I when I was released from a field training officer, um, the program, I started. I went back to school to finish my bachelor's online mm-hmm. uh, in homeland security. So I was a full-time student. So that kept me busy the whole two times I was um, the whole two weeks that I was off work. Because I was ready to go back to work, man, like the next day. Like, you know, I was... Well, I mean, sitting there, idle time's the devil's playground. And when mm-hmm. you've had something psychological go down like that, it's like, you don't want me to sit at home and reel. I promise. You want right. to, like, give me a field full of hay to bail yeah. or something. Give You know, I mean, sitting at home, it's, it, it's just like anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, shooting, a close death in the family. You're going to sit there and all you're going to do is think and torture yourself. Getting back on the horse, getting back on the routine is probably the right answer. But I understand why they would want you to clear your head, you know, and clear the investigation. So my friends, you know, 
this this was a very crit crucial uh, life stage for me because um, I started realizing that I needed to be, get closer towards my family, my friends, you know, my girlfriend at the time. And um, I started drinking a lot, man. Mm -hmm. The drinking came. Um, just the aftermath, man, it was hard. Um, the depression from the Marine Corps started coming back around again. But as Marines, we're taught to what? Suck it up and mm. bottle everything down, right? And the way that I would deal with things or deal with stress is going to the gym, working out, running. And I went back to Steve's house, my, my FTO, my training officer, and he's like, you need to come here as soon as possible and you need to shoot a gun. You need to make sure that you're able to operate the way operate again to. and you're not going to be able to freak out. So I did. I went back up there and, um, and I just started, you know, shooting and, you know, just bringing myself back, making sure that I wasn't affected by my, you know, with those actions. So after two, two, three weeks, I went back to work on desk duty. And um, at that point, it was a waiting game, man. It was the longest three months. Because um, of investigation or? Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so the investigation. And then two weeks after my shooting, George Floyd happened. Ah, good. So I was assigned to Ben. Ben is the training man. He was the training coordinator for the agency, and he pretty much handled the firing range, handled um, any training. So they said, hey, man, you're going to be working with Ben Monday to Friday. Anything that he needs you to do, you report to him. And is this shit duty or is this look out for you duty? Uh, it was mostly like, we're going to look out for you. Okay. You're going to still get paid. You're not being punished. They're just trying no, to find no, a no. spot for you where you can exactly. kind of ease back in. But they also can't put you on the road until the investigation is cleared. Correct, right. Yeah. And and it was more like, we're not going to allow you to stay home and, and just drink your thoughts away. Let's bring mm -hmm. you back mm -hmm, where you mm -hmm. can still be within the agency and feel that that purpose back yeah purpose brotherhood now let me ask you this mm -hmm. was there an sop or standard operating procedure over there for officers that were involved in a shooting like this was there psychological uh psychological mm -hmm. uh help or counseling or anything offered in that two to three week period when you're first off yes so about two weeks into it um i had to see his uh strength you know i met with uh it was virtual because it was, easy, it was the easiest. Mm -hmm. So I met with a doctor online. We talked. But at that point, I couldn't open up to her because I was still numb to the events. Uh, I wasn't really experiencing any of the, any of the, uh, the effects yet. So I just mm -hmm. told her, yeah, this is what happened. I'm good. I want to go back to work. So she cleared me to go back to work. So during those last three months, those three months, I, you know, I just helped band around the range, cutting the grass. Mm-hmm pressure washing uh, and, and it was it was a long three months man so after the two weeks George Floyd happened the riots right everybody the CNN the news man it was it was all over the news yeah. of officer police brutality right and I, I started I mean I was getting worried because like you know it was national news but even though everybody kept reassuring me that I was gonna be okay I was still nervous and then two weeks after that Atlanta happened the officer that uh, shot and killed that uh, individual at the Wendy's parking lot. I think was, you guys remember yep, that? Yep, yep, yep. He tried to grab his taser and yep. you know, he shot him. Man, that was another good, you know, like, oh. and I kept asking. Stirring my, it up, yeah. I kept, I kept asking my chain of command, 
when am I going to be cleared? Like, when am I going to be cleared? And they, they didn't have the answers. You know, they're like, we're just waiting. It's a waiting game. It's a waiting game. <clears throat> so finally, after three months, man, of that waiting game and just being around, doing, you know, things that I didn't want to be doing, they're like, hey, you're being cleared officially. The district attorney is going to release a, a press release tomorrow, and it's going to be it's going to be very detailed on what happened, and, yeah. and you're going to go back to work. Mm-hmm. And they did, you know, they released it to the media, the news. And um, when I said, um, when, you know, tunnel vision, when 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 you're doing something, when they say, you know, that when you get it, when you're doing something, heat of the moment and adrenaline is going through your body, you do things that you, you, you don't know about. Like, for example, when I thought that I shot the man only two to three times after the, the report came back and the autopsy, everything came back, came to the conclusion that I had shot him nine times, ten times, but I, I missed him one time. So I hit him nine out of ten. And one was in the heart, was a deadly, the deadly, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And all the details released, everything. Um, and I was like, damn, you know. It's crazy. So I went back to work. It's went, the speed of the mind. Yeah. And, and I think it's a self-defense mechanism because it knows that when you pull those files together and you remember that properly, it could potentially have uh, damaging effects or whatever on you. I mm-hmm. think that's your, you know, your parasympathetic nervous system or your sympathetic nervous system kind of doing things for you, right? Yep. Let's file that differently because it was the same thing from combat with us, with almost everybody that's ever been in real, uh, you know, firefight, wherever that happened. You could ask 10 people, boom, 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 same question. How you remember it, how you remember it, and you're going to get 8 to 10 different answers mm-hmm. because all of them log that stuff different, and it's probably like an evolutionary uh, fail-safe, right? Yeah. But it doesn't make it easy when you're trying to figure it out. You know, yeah. it doesn't make it doesn't make it feel better. <clears throat> so before I go back to um, – before I went back to the road, so like about a month after the incident, the entire team and everybody who was involved, we all gather around. And we did a peer support system with the Highway Patrol. And the Highway Patrol, they have a program called the MAT Team, which they come out, and every time there's an officer who's involved in a shooting, they come out and they provide that mental health support. And all these troopers, they've been in shootings throughout their entire career, Hmm. back robberies, traffic stops. So they've all been there where I've been. So I remember we all sit in, in a huge circle, me and all my team members, everybody, right? And they're like, all right, let's talk about it. Let's break it down. What happened? And I started hearing the story from everybody on my team, their perspective and how they were in fear for their life, how they, how this event affected them. Mm-hmm. And I was the last. Man, by the time it got through like the third, I couldn't even, I couldn't even keep myself, man. I, mm. I was in tears. Duty affected me so much, knowing mm. that I wasn't the only one going through that. Like, my buddies were also suffering, just like I was. That, like, man, I was out there for, like, 30 minutes just bawling my eyes off, man. And I, and I still think about it and get emotional because, you know, yeah, we, we put on this persona. Like, we're machos, you know, we're, we're big, you know, mm-hmm. we're alpha. But in reality, we're human beings and we, are, we get, we have feelings, too. They get jacked up, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So after I went back, man, and uh, I I told everybody in front of everybody how I perceived it and how everything 
that I did affected me. And it was like the biggest weight off my shoulders. I was mm-hmm. like, I was so glad. That was the longest month of my life. Mm. You know? I'm sure. Yeah, because I couldn't call my mother and tell my mom, hey, mom, this is what happened. I couldn't share that with my mom, man. Mm-hmm. I just told her that I was okay. I couldn't share it with my girlfriend at the time. Sure. She wasn't on my shoes. And I couldn't really, as much as I wanted to share it with other cops, I couldn't because it's still an active investigation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So I held off and finally, you know, got, a, got it out of my system. And then I went back to work, went back to the road, man. And it was I was like a brand new man. <laughs> man, I was proactive, man. Stopping cars, you know, seizing drugs and guns off the streets, man. Just back to myself again. And um, started having some issues with um, with some of the leaders at the agency. Not everybody, but some, some leaders who just didn't want me to be proactive. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to be... They wanted me to answer my calls and, and just be... Reactive instead of yeah. proactive. And that is not the reason why I got into law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And so we started bumping heads. And um, one thing came after the other, you know, you know, I was being... I got rolled up a couple of times for issues that, yes, was I wrong in some of the stuff? Yes, but at the same time, I felt like I had a target behind my back. So it didn't take very long for me to see the writing in the wall that... There was a specific individual who who just didn't like me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that as long as I was there and he was there, I wasn't going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Because the opportunity came for me to, um, the corporal spot came up in my shift, man. And that's the first line of uh, supervisor. So I was going to be in charge of like three other deputies, right? And I boarded for it, I tested for it, and and I, I got it, right? They promoted me to corporal for about six hours. And me and that lieutenant got into it, man. We got into it, and, and I told him how I felt about him and how he micromanaged me and how I didn't, I, I didn't agree with any of his, you know, his views or anything. And um, I turned my two weeks, my two weeks on it. Like, that, that was it for me. I just couldn't handle it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I left that job, and um, I went home. And, um, man, that was one of the hardest spills for me to swallow because— I drove home in my patrol car, and they came, because I put in a two-week notice, and I said, hey, I'm leaving, thank you, you know, and uh, I wanted to speak to the sheriff personally. I wanted to, to, you know, speak to the man, like, hey, this is why I'm leaving. You have a problem within your leadership that needs to be addressed, and if you're not willing to hear me out, then why should I be working for you? Right. Like, you supported me through this major incident, but you're not listening, you know? Like... To be a leader, you have to be able to listen to your troops, man. And, and that was the problem with this individual. He was never in the military. Mm-hmm. So he didn't know what leadership is <laughs> or was. He was just a micromanager, plain and simple micromanager. Mm-hmm. And many great cops left that agency <laughs> because of that specific individual. <coughs> Excuse me. You know? Yeah. So they came to my house, man, and, and they collected all my they didn't. They didn't even let me finish out my two weeks. Yeah, they're pissed, huh? They came to my house, man, that same day and collected all my stuff and took that purpose away from me. Like, that car was no longer in my driveway. I didn't have any uniforms, nothing. It was just me. Mm-hmm. But I knew at that point that that wasn't the end of me, you know? So 
But you put you put your your two weeks in. It's not like they fired you. No, I put my two weeks. You were like, hey, I'm going to be done there. Like, you know what? Just don't even worry about it. Yeah, come get our stuff. We got plenty of people. Whatever the case. No, they actually it it made them. So they didn't have plenty of people. But they were mad because my my sergeant had left already. He had quit, and it was just a line of people out the door, man. That talks leadership, man. People were like, we're done. Yep. And not only we were we're having to worry about getting in trouble in the streets. Now we're having to get in, watching our backs from our leadership. Mm-hmm. Like, man, that's one thing. Inside the house and outside the house. You can't do both, man. Yeah. So yeah. the opportunity came. Had you know, I knew that there was going to be agencies that are hurting now, because after George Floyd, man, cops starting retiring, man. Cops started going out the door early because mm-hmm. they didn't want to. They didn't want to do nothing with it, no part with it. So I applied down to uh, where I'm working now, out Pender. And I got hired on within three weeks, man. I was brought in, welcome aboard, and went right back into it. To what SWAT or just on the beat? Patrol on the beat. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah. And and that was one of the hardest things for me to um, when I left that agency was you know leaving the team. But I left, and I knew that the other agency had another team, mm-hmm. so I made it a goal and a challenge for me to get on that team. So I was there for about three months and they had tryouts and I mean people already knew who I was because it's a neighboring county man we you know sure tr- word spreads yeah they knew in who, the community anyway yeah, the the law enforcement community yeah. you know they knew who I was and um, man I was willing to prove myself all, all over again I didn't care and you know I was in great shape again and tryouts came around and and boom made a new team again and uh, started working on the beat Back to my regular schedule. Um, my daughter was born, actually. Let's backtrack. My daughter was born in January of 2021. Man, and I got to say, when, you, when you're in law enforcement and you don't have kids, it's one thing. But when you're, when you're an officer and you have a kid, especially a daughter, man, that changes mm-hmm. the entire perspective. The dynamic shifts. Yeah. Because before, man, I used to stop cars, man, three, four o'clock in the morning by myself, three, four people in the car, man, guns everywhere, drugs, and I didn't care. I just wanted to be a cop and, you know, hold those individuals accountable. Mm -hmm. But now, after my daughter was born, I started to think about not only me and myself, it was no longer about me. It's about my daughter and my family. Mm-hmm. Is that traffic stop really worth it, man? Definitely not alone. Right. Maybe you do that with some backup. Mm-hmm. So st- I started shifting my entire perspective of just being the best cop out there. And I started thinking more about my family. It was very hard to turn that switch on and off, man. Mm-hmm. And, and in law enforcement, it's hard. It really is. And... We, we struggle with with a lot of stress. You know, we work 12 hours, night shift, day shift. We come home, we're tired. We deal with people on the streets who we argue with all day. You know, they lie to us for a living. People lie to us every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We see the worst of the worst. And then you come home, it's hard. And try not to drag it through the door with you. Yeah. No, I, I, I can't imagine. And And it took me about three years to realize how to turn that off. And like like last night, I worked a full night shift. 
you know, and I came home, I was able to turn it off, sleep some, and I'm here, you know. Mm -hmm. So I went back to the beat. <clears throat> I graduated with my bachelor's degree. In Homeland Security? Yeah. Now, is this AMU? Yes, I online. I think we talked about that. I'm pretty sure we had some of the same instructors, actually. Yeah, yeah. But um, I always wanted to be more than just a street cop. So um, I applied to the DEA, you know, because I was very motivated about finding drugs. Mm -hmm. So I applied to the DEA, and um, I applied back when I was on leave, waiting to be cleared for my first shooting. And uh, I did everything, man. Drove to different cities, interviews, polygraph, all that stuff, man. It was about a 12-month-long process. And um, I was convinced that I was going to be hired by the DEA, man. Like I said, I did everything. The recruiter was like, man, you're good. Mm -hmm. We're just waiting for your official academy. And uh, that's all I wanted to do. But... For some reason, life didn't want it that way, man. Yeah. I um. I didn't get selected. They didn't hire me. Mm -hmm. And talk about being disappointed again, man. Remember how I went back? I told you guys about my first disappointment in life when I wanted to be a special operator. Mm -hmm. Man, it was like it happened right again. Felt like that. And it was a huge, huge pillow, uh, pill for me to swallow, man. But then... I took some vacation, me and my girlfriend took some vacation, went down to Key West, came back, and I just started, I went back to the the board, you know, thinking about life again, what I was going to do with my life, and I said, you know what, maybe this is just not the time for um, for me to be in the DEA, like, I'm going to be gone, I'm going to move away mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to another different state, I'm not going to see my daughter, my daughter was like less than a year old, so I said, I said, whatever. So I moved down with life. I graduated my bachelor's, and um, after I graduated my bachelor's, I had like a week off, right? And then uh, I went to advanced SWAT school. I started training a lot. So after my first incident, I told myself, you know what? I'm gonna be the best trained cop that I could possibly be. And whether it's whether that takes time for me out of my own time. Because a lot of the agencies, man, were short with people. You have to find your own coverage. Like, if you want to take a day off to go train, like, you can't just, you know, we don't have that luxury. Like, especially mm -hmm. if we're short, you have to find Sick. your own coverage. So It's, it's sickening because I, I feel like there should be worked in a way where you don't have to take time off to go train for your job. I feel like there should be... And that's my ignorance to the situation, to manpower, to resources and budgets, apparently. But I feel the same as all these other personalities are saying 20% of your work week should be training for your mm -hmm. work week. You know, how many situations prior to the old angry white man with a long beard come busting out of a door? How many times have you been in a scenario where you had to make a decision that fast as a cop in training? Was it a lot or a little? I mean, well, was it ever? Here's the thing, like, you go to police academy, and then you get hired by an agency, you go to the firing range one time a year. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I'm saying. One time, you go to the range, you shoot your qualification day and night, and then that's it. And mm -hmm. then you do your in-service online. Like, do you shoot a qualification with a CS gas mask on? You don't. Do you shoot it with your kid on? Absolutely not. 
Do you shoot it when you're at a VO2 max and your heart rate's pounding through your face and you can feel your pupils dilating and you can feel the heartbeat coming outside of your eyes? I mean, you do a little combat course, but it's nothing to that level. That, you know? And that's that's kind of what I'm saying. The way we train to go to war mm -hmm. is we try to make it as real as possible and do it so much that... Try and make it harder. When, when our brain shuts off and goes primitive in fight, fight or flight, the body just knows what it's supposed to do. And you talked about a little yep. bit of that going reverting back to the training. So you had a little bit of that for sure coming mm -hmm. out of your schooling, maybe a little bit from the Marine Corps too. Um, but how many cops are out there that when a situation like this happens, you have to make it in a tenth of a second split decision to, you know, uh, action on saving your own or somebody else's life? How many of them are not doing it or are doing it wrong? Right. And ending up going up a flagpole in some county, uh, you know, jail somewhere and getting run because you panicked because you haven't had to do these actions with this kind of adrenaline in this kind of time frame mm -hmm. literally ever. Right. You know, I always harp on my little brother up in Ohio like, hey, get your training in. Go to mm -hmm. the range. If that's what you have to do, then that's what you have to do. But don't be that one guy that didn't do it got slouchy, mm -hmm. and then ends up in a situation where you either have to push into a bad situation or blow out of a bad situation. Right. And, and, and man, it's sickening because these are, these are some of the best Americans that we have out there providing a blanket of freedom on the streets. And, and it seems to me they don't have the resources, the mm -hmm. time, and the money available to make them the best cops that they could be for those situations. Correct. And so, all right, so let's, I want to understand, um, Dude, we just unpacked a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. Let's speak to like when I was when I went and got got it on for the first time. It changed me, um, and it does that to everybody. But when I came home, my people didn't like me anymore. <laughs> like my Marines, they didn't understand why I want to train so hard. They didn't understand why we're doing on and off drills for four hours with tourniquets one day. They didn't understand that we we're doing butter butter jam jam. And I I only had a very very small portion of time. Once I came back, because then it was like off to another school. Matt's taking the helm. He's making sure he's running the star squad. And we're coming out of that going, you don't, you guys, you don't have a clue, boys. I've been doing this for 10 years. You have zero time to train. You need to get it on now. So, like, did you experience that? Yeah. So, after my first incident, like I told you guys earlier, um, I made a promise to myself not only individually, but as a team member and as a cop, to be the best version of myself, whether it was to be better at running, um, better at shooting, um, and just being a team member. So I know for a fact that one of my uh, weaknesses is shooting at long distances with my pistol. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I go to the range and I shoot as much as I can from the 50, 75. Um, and went back to the range, my buddy's house, and you know, luckily he's he's got the ability, he's got the facility where I could go and train at no cost, man. He's he just anytime I could go out there, I would go out there. Put ammo together and let's go. Right, but that that was prior to um when COVID, you know, and then ammo ammunition got really expensive, so that's another challenge that came ahead. You know, COVID and then, and then training, everybody stopped training. You know, and is that is that due to the ways of the world with COVID and things of that nature? Also, is it from the George George Floyd type incidents that continued to happen? Like because that stays in the media now. Oh yeah, and you know it's a 
it's it's one of those situations where it's being talked about everywhere. Every podcast, every show. I'm about to do the DT, DTD podcast, which is a you know a, a former law enforcement that's trying to put stuff out there, good content mm-hmm. out there, picking people up. And it's like there's a craving for this, and and we're talking about it, but is it changing? Um, and so, what's your take on that? Has it changed since uh, you know the last two years, or are we still in a situation where we're pigeon pigeonholing you know these departments with resources and money? It's changing. Okay. It um, definitely has. And I say that because when George Floyd happened, we all took a step back and said, we can't be doing that. That's not, you know, there are good cops out there, but there's also bad cops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we cannot let one bad cop ruin it for the rest of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, we went back and our ag- every agency went back and we started training on, hey, we, that's not what we're teaching you guys. We're not placing the knee on somebody's neck. We're not. Because um, you're an FTO now, right? Right, yeah. So I went back to school. I became a field training officer. Um, trained guys now. I went to advanced SWAT and went to a bunch of tactical classes because I wanted to better myself and I wanted to pass down knowledge like it was passed down to me by my FTO. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I hold my trainings to a high standard mm-hmm. from day one. Mm-hmm. And as you should, you're talking about life and death. Yes. And it's just the basic things like, hey, we're going to a gas station to get a drink. You're going to back your car in to the gas station. You're not facing your vehicle in because you're at a disadvantage. And it goes back to when my training officer told me approach every situation at an advantage. And from a dominant position. Yeah, Yeah. From a dominant position. And not only that, but treat everybody with respect. The biggest thing Mm -hmm. I have learned in my law enforcement career, he's treating people with respect mm-hmm. uh, because we're all human beings. And when I started, I was very aggressive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, oh no, you're gonna show me your hands. You are under arrest. You know, and that created a lot of situations where I could have avoided, it could have been prevented just by me speaking to people. <clears throat> and that came with time, experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I have found that out that now I could do so much by just talking to people. Mm-hmm. I can convince mm-hmm. you to put your own handcuffs on, you know? By showing you a little respect, de-escalating the situation. Sympathy. Keeping nerves down, having a little bit of compassion. Mm-hmm. This is all the stuff that I teach in, in, at, at, for my course at Franklin County. I, I te- uh, Franklin County, Ohio, it's, um, it's the county that Columbus is in. It's the county where my little brother is a, is a, is a CO at and uh, went through the peace officers course and it's kind of like up there there's still some competition so he's been in the jail for quite some time looking mm-hmm. to get to SWAT or to the you know to the beat and um, and so they uh, you know approached me um, I think three years ago now this will be the third year that I've been teaching critical intervention skills with them and I've, I've taught so for you know three straight peace officers courses that they teach i'm telling them hey respect is going to go farther than authoritative tones and these kind of um i'm no cop but i know how i would want to be treated and i'm Mm -hmm. one of those guys that has issues from the war so and a little bit of disenfranchisement a little bit of lack of trust system over the last couple of years and it's like if these are things common to me that i'm thinking about these are things that these other veterans in your ao and your constituents and the people you're supposed to keep safe that's what they're thinking about a lot of them you know, and so we really get after it. We do a two-hour course during there. 
during their peace officers course, just specifically speaking on these things and on these situations and on the danger. I mean, you take a disenfranchised SF guy or a regular infantry guy, you're talking about somebody that you don't want to come up and be authoritative with. The, the difference in how you approach some of these people uh, could be a shooting versus not a shooting. And, you know, everywhere in between, depending on the demeanor, the respect and the de-escalation that you can bring to the table, you know. And so we talk a lot about that. I think that's needed. I think that's needed more places. Um, but I'm glad that your guys' training is uh, continuing. I know offline you were showing me some some pretty sick training where, you, you know, you got snipers shooting off of tables and making runs like what – Tell me what you're implementing during that and, 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 and how that training came about, why it came about. So our team now, we have a very young team, um, a lot of Marine Corps veterans in the team that I'm in now, which is great. Sure. We have a strong bond. Um, we have some senior operators who pass a lot of knowledge down to us, and we're, we're blessed to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have retired SWAT operators from um, – my friend Blake, man, great guy. He uh, did eight years as an operator in Fayetteville. Saw a lot, a lot of training under his belt. He's been coming around a lot, and um, he's got his own company now, Black Black Flag Solutions, who teaches other law enforcement officers across the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're blessed by that. Th- those individuals who come out and um, help us out. And so this training that that I was just showing you earlier, um, we just had our SWAT competition. And uh, we pretty much went out there and competed against other SWAT teams who have, um, you know, some of them have better training budgets than we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have better gear, better, they got optics in their weapons. They train longer. But I'm very proud of my team because we, we beat two teams. And uh, we, we, we lost to the, uh, to the Highway Patrol team, which are great guys, humble, humble, super great guys. But it was a huge learning experience mm-hmm. because it created such strong bond amongst each other. Camaraderie. And now we're going to take training even more serious. Mm-hmm. We're gonna, we want to train even more now. Hungry. Yeah, we're hungry because next year we want to go back and we want to win the competition. Sure. So that's the beauty about being in law enforcement, but it's even better about being in a team. And I won't lie to you, I have many friends who have gotten out of the profession. To include my FTO, he got out. Um, many good friends who are no longer cops are doing other things. You, you, why? And, well, because, number one, after the whole George Floyd incident happened, they, they said, you know, that they didn't want to be part of that no more. They didn't, want, they didn't want to be held accountable for a simple mistake that, you know? Yeah. Number one. Number two, they wanted to be home more with their families. Um, and we don't get any law enforcement to be rich. We don't. No. We wrong wrong place to do yes, that. Wrong place. We don't get paid the best, but we we really do make a difference. Um, every day to me is not it's not the same. I go to work today, and I know that tonight is not going to be the same as last night or tonight. You know, every day is different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, that's the beauty of being in law enforcement. Every day you are truly experiencing different things. And I do it because it gives me that purpose of life mm. that I am missing from not being in the Marine Corps anymore. And my younger brother just left the Marine Corps. He's going to be a uh, <coughs> getting ready to be a state trooper in New Jersey. Get some. Yeah. Um, but a lot of friends 
close good friends of mine are no longer cops and you know we talk every day and and, and I have taught about getting out of law enforcement many times there's I've been at many opportunities where people have reached out to me to come work for them and do different things and I have thought about it it had crossed my mind but at the end of the day I know that there's more that I can offer mm-hmm. and and do you think it would some of these opportunities would fulfill that that void of purpose that you've you know found and reinvigorated within you no definitely not because the money might be good but i know i'm gonna miss it i'm gonna miss being in the streets i'm gonna miss talking to people mm-hmm. i'm gonna miss being on the on the team with the guys mm-hmm. so that is the reason why i love this profession and i truly enjoy it and giving back training the new generation that comes along the way like i'm still you know i'm going on four years but I feel like I have some knowledge that I could pass down. Yeah. And with that being said, I went back to work after my first incident, went back to school, graduated with my bachelor's, uh, picked up my master's right away in criminal justice, the same school, full time uh, with my daughter, you know, having whole, you know, family and just, it was very stressful. Mm. And then December 14th, 2021 came along and that's when my second incident occurred. And this is with Tinder now? Yes. Okay. Yeah, um, little less than a year with them. And so it was a Tuesday, Tuesday morning, and I had a domestic violence protection order that I needed to serve. That's one of the functions they would do as a sheriff's office, civil process. So I went out there, and it was about a 40-minute drive from anything. It was a very rural area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, before I got there, I looked up the guy. Um, on our system and I knew that he um, I saw that he had some warrants for his arrest for child support and he had also some um, his father was the one who took out the restraining order against him Um, he had some traffic related warrants but nothing major nothing 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 crazy nothing violent so or or like to tip you off right it was Mm -hmm. like it was in the morning nine o'clock a.m. and my whole purpose was to go out there serve this individual and I wasn't even gonna take him to jail because I was going to give him the opportunity to handle it. To do his big boy thing. Yeah, yeah. That's the level of where I'm at now. Like, hey, man, I'm going to give you a chance. You know, like Mm -hmm, mm de-escalation. So I get there. I knock in the camper. And um, this also, by the way, this is all car and body camera. And it's also available online. Like the district attorney released it. You know, a judge signed off of it. And you can see my body camera online Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where everything took place. But I got there, I knocked on the camper, uh, you know, I asked to, you know, I tried to make contact with the individual, but I couldn't hear him. Um, so from there, I went upstairs and talked to the dad. And, um, you know, I told him why I was there. He knew I was there because he was the one who took it out. Mm-hmm. And I asked him where his son was at, and he told me that he was in the camper. So, he, you know, he walked me down to the camper, and I asked him if he had a key to the camper. And um, he tried to, you know, unlock the camper. But he was uh, locked from the inside with the with a key uh, mm-hmm. with the, the chain. Bolt or yeah, chain. with the chain. Okay. So it kind of cracked a little bit, and then at that point, his son came out. Like I saw his shadow, and uh, he was angry. You could tell he was under influence, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was pissed off, and 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 I said, hey, Ed, you know, again, I'm not gonna go into detail about names and everything, but I said, hey, man, I'm here because of this. I gotta serve you with this. Like that's all. Just while while I'm doing. Yep. And he got very angry, and he right off the bat told me that he had a gun on there. He had a gun with him, and then he was going to kill me. He just told you? Mm Mm-hmm. 
So from there, it went from zero to 100 real quick. Mm. You know, I mean, like you see in my video, my body camera video, you know, I holster my weapon and I automatically took cover behind my patrol car, training kicked in again, told the dad to move out the way. Dad moved out of the way and we're both de-escalating the situation, talking to this man. At one point, I'm pretty much pleading this man to come out peacefully and that I was going to take him to jail and I was going to bring him back. Mm-hmm. I-, I told him, I don't want to hurt you. Mm-hmm. I promise I'm not here to hurt you. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm communicating with my backup. Hey, man, I need to get here. Like, I'm, I'm alone. I need help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of my friends, you know, he's, he's coming to me and the whole cop, everybody's coming to me. SWAT team got activated. My boys are coming to me. So I knew that I was just going to... Time. Time was you in my hands. This. You learned this already. <laughs> time was in my hands. And he's like, hey, I got a rifle. I asked the dad, hey, what kind of gun does he have? He's like, man, he's got a rifle. I'm good. So I went back to my, my, you know, my squad car, got my AR-15 out, you know, and I just held it. And um, right, I could hear the sirens coming. My buddy was coming. And he pulled in right behind me. And I looked, I looked back, and he was running towards me with his AR-15 as well. And the mo- as soon as I turned back towards the camper, I saw the man, you know, the suspect, jump out from behind the camper. His feet hit the ground, and I saw him running with a rifle in his hands. So we chased him, and uh, the whole time I'm running after him, I'm telling dispatch, hey, man, I got he's running away from me, he's armed with a rifle, and I'm, I'm talking to this man, hey, man, stop running, please don't do it, you know? like. But we came across a building like a brick wall where he kind of, I lost sight of him. And something, something in my ear just kind of told me to stop at that corner. They were like, it was like, Drago, stop. You're going to get ambushed. You know, like that. Spidey sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I did. I stopped, peeked around the, around the, around the wall. And I saw him with the rifle. And he took off down this path, dirt path. And I, I we continued to chase him. And finally, <clears throat> We're telling him, giving him verbal commands, stop running, you know. We're about 40 to 50 yards from him, and he uh, he had the rifle on him. He stopped, took a knee, and uh, raced it at me and my partner. Just stopped, turned around, took a knee, and mm-hmm. about to engage. And at that point, again, training. We just had qualified at the range. We did drills with our AR-15s, going from the standing to the kneeing. And he was like, it clicked so fast. Mm-hmm. Like, we both took a knee. And we engaged at the same time. And you and your partner, yeah. your buddy. Yeah, he was right next to me, offset on the right, and uh, we both engaged at the same time. Um, the tunnel vision hit again; like it went from a huge circle to a little circle, and I couldn't hear nothing out of my ears because you know it's an AR-15. And um, at the time, I only thought I only shot like two rounds, two three rounds again. So we went up to him, we assessed him, tried to provide you know first aid or whatever, and then. Right after he went down, like, the whole office showed up. Yeah. Like, this man only had to wait literally a minute. And he could have been alive still. Yes. But he made that choice. Ultimately, he made the choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, we both went home at the end of the night. <clears throat> um, and, again, somebody else took me under the wing, a great captain. Um, I love him to death. He took me under his wing and was there for me and for my partner. And then same thing. Went home, started drinking. Again, man, this time was a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, started drinking liquor. I was out for about a month, and um, I went down to the psychologist again, talked to the psychologist, but I couldn't let it out, you know. And then it wasn't until 
the math team came over again and we did it all over again that it hit me again mm-hmm. and um sometimes that's what's necessary is just to know that hey you did this is normal mm-hmm. you're gonna feel these things yep it's not natural you didn't see it coming maybe you weren't you know you obviously handle business but when you woke up that day you weren't planning on putting somebody down hard and and that you got to work through that you know and yeah. and it sounds like it sounds like they at least have a good SOP for the team to mm-hmm. come and get around you and be like hey this is what we're going through too and this is your norm like this is what you should be going through and just that alone can help somebody that's full blown alpha you know, I don't care how many issues you've been in, these things are going to play an effect on you. You know what I mean? There's plenty of books out there by SF guys from the Army and Marines and, and, and Raider Battalion and Navy SEALs. And, and guess what? They all get treatment too mm-hmm. now. Maybe oh, yeah. it didn't used to be like that. But now the knowledge is there. The help is there. And it's like, hey, like handle your business because you can come back and be okay again. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't sort this out, this can be a death sentence for you. This, this can, you could drown yourself in a bottle, you, you know, fistful of pills. There's, there's different remedies for every single, you know, different organization out there that they go to. Mm-hmm. It just seems like finally we're getting to a point where a lot of people are saying, Hey, this talking thing and this letting them know reassurance that they're okay and that we've got them seems to work pretty good. Correct. All right. So, so I went back to work uh, about a month after I was clear by the district attorney again, the whole cycle repeated itself with the SBI and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I went back to work, back to the streets, doing my thing. And then about three months into it, I started kind of feeling a little weird mentally. Mm-hmm. And uh, my agency did great. I offered me resources. But as a veteran, I couldn't really disclose how I felt to a civilian. So I reached out to the VA. Mm-hmm. And um, I got a counselor with the VA who I speak to every month now. And I, that has helped me cope with different things. And then most of my friends are first responders. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. either first responders or veterans. Like very few of them are not. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because it's not how I want it to be. It's just how it is. Like when I went to police academy, I remember they told us your circle of like friends are just going to get closer. Like your friends are going to stop being friends. The minute they find out you become a cop, they're no longer going to be your friends. And mm-hmm. it happened. Like, all my true friends who I have friends with are no longer my friends because they know I'm a cop. Interesting. And then the challenges came with the media, man. The media found out about my incidents, you know, they try to bash me on, on, you know, on, on, on the news saying that, you know, that I had two incidents. And again, instead of saying two scumbags are now not fucking around on this world anymore and causing correct. people harm. Yeah. They want to take aim at the police officer that put the scumbag down for doing bad things. Exactly. Well, that's the world we live in right now, un- but, unfortunately. Um, thankfully, I have great leadership, great commands, you know, great attorneys who back me up, and everything is, is being handled, you know. Like, at the end of the day, I was cleared by two district, two different district attorneys of any wrongdoing, and I'm still doing the job. And so I went back. Like I said, I was in school um, early this year or June of this year. I graduated with my master's. And um, remember how I told you about that toxic leader that I know that I bumped heads with? At Duplin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I told myself I didn't want to be like him. Mm-hmm. So I started a leadership course. And, you know, um, I just completed one of, the, one of the first modules. And it's all strictly about leadership. And 
now have a great leader who who um, I look up to, and he he understands, man. He he's out there doing a the job with us. He doesn't micromanage. And that is what law enforcement is about. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, um, you have to have a decentralized decision-making command, much like we have in the Marine Corps. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't work. I mean, if you're waiting on the time, that's the time right there. Mm-hmm. And these things happen in microseconds, not even full seconds. So mm-hmm. uh, having a centralized chain of command that's micromanaging everybody is not what you want in that situation. Yeah. But you do want cops that know how to manage themselves. Yeah. And so that's that's awesome, man. That's awesome. so. What's it look like now for you? What's next? So I mean, I know you're still there. You're still at Pender, but I mean, yeah. you you seem like you're really enjoying that. You seem like you got pretty good leadership uh, cadre, you know, over top of you. Are you. You're comfortable there. Comfortable staying there, and uh, like that's your future plans, or what do we got? So in the future, I mean, um, like I told you, um, my my angle was to be in you know you know federal law enforcement. That's what I wanted to do. And that's what I would continue to strive to be. Mm-hmm. Um, currently in the process with the U.S. Marshals. Um, now, almost done with the entire process. Just got a few things left. And it's been a crazy process, almost two years in the process. It's a long process. But just being patient. And now I'm just kind of enjoying my time with my family, my, my daughter. Seeing my family grow means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. She's definitely one of my biggest motivators. Because now I have to th- think about her. It's mm-hmm. no longer about me. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's just me trying to be a better individual, um, a better, you know, whatever, dad, team member, officer, son. And um, training, man, training is a lot. Um, I know some of the weaknesses that I have to improve in, and that's what I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on now is just going out to the range and, and improving my, whether it's my marksmanship skills, my CQB skills, and just being a better version of myself. And not only learning it for myself, but learning it to pass it forward to the guy behind me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it makes no sense if I'm going to be a better cop and I'm going to go to all these training in schools if I'm just going to keep it to myself. Fact. It's going to be, it will be a disadvantage to the community and to the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and in law enforcement, it's not a job. It's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You have to live, you're either a cop 24-7 or you're not a cop. Um. And unfortunately, you know, in the last 72 hours, 14 cops have been shot in the United States. In the entire United States, seven have been killed, to include the last one last night in Raleigh, off-duty cop. So it's this year alone, I have been to three funerals. Mm-hmm. And every time I go to a funeral, man, I cry because it really hurts me. I take it personally. Even though I, I might have never met that officer, that's part of you. It hurts me, and I cry every single time, and that's why I want to be a better individual, a better officer. That's why I train more. I mean, and, and sometimes you just can't prevent. But if I know that I that I could be a better, like if I at the end of the day, I'm going to be able to live with that, and my family's going to be able to live with that. And but yeah, that's that's the future. That's pretty much. Uh, I'm, I'm young. I'm only 27. I'll be 28 next uh, in two months. So I still got, you know, a whole career ahead of me, man. And um, one day I plan to be a leader. I hope to, you know. Make I think it. you're, I think it's quite, it's obvious to me yeah. from this side that you're leading. Uh, you don't have to have a title and a ranking insignia yeah. to be a leader, uh, nor do you need any of that to be a mentor. And you're yeah. mentoring these young guys on things that you fucked up mm-hmm. or didn't fuck up. Um, so that they can at least, you know, that's, that's the whole purpose of my show is to bring guys like you on, like him on, like the other guests I've had. And it's like, 
these current hitters in the Marine Corps, Army, SF, infantry, uh, all around the world, see it's anybody, uh, can come here and now police officers and firefighters that we've had on can come here and they can get this knowledge of things that have happened in their profession to the professionals working beside them and then have that quick acquisition if that comes up. Mm-hmm. That's why I push reading so much. You you read, you know, you have a Marine read that book right there. And it's going to give you, um, you know, a hundred different TDGs and the contextual information of why we messed it up and how you could do better. Right. right. And that's what I'm about because if we don't, like you said, if you if you get all this in a selfish way and never pass it down, you didn't do anything. Right. You just got a bunch of knowledge. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe it helped you out a little bit. But if you get it, you pass it, you train it, and you have that culture of, no, this is the way we do it, and this is the right way, and it's time proven and tested, and then we're going to continue to tweak that, right? Because nothing's mm-hmm. perfect. They're always going to find a workaround. You know, the enemy... The guys in the streets doing bad things, they're always going to find a workaround. Who's on what shift? Where are they going to operate now? You know what I mean? They're, they're smart. They're going to do that. Right. Um, and so there will always be those those small tweaks, you know, those windage adjustments and those elevation adjustments. And maybe we need to, hey, no foot, no, no knees on the throat, boys. What are mm-hmm. we doing kind of thing? Like, let, let's be – if you're not doing that, you should be. If you're a leader uh, in a PD or a CO somewhere, an SO somewhere, um, and you're not having the – Dragos of your unit come out and implement this training and you're not doing it, then you're failing your department and you're not living up to your title, in my opinion. So, And I'm, I'm truly blessed, man, that I have a strong support system behind me. Family, you know, girlfriend, um, mother, you know, other cops around me who truly support me. And when I even mention to them that I have thought about getting law enforcement, they truly get upset at me. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, you, you you need to stay in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You are the future of law enforcement. And that really brings me back to reality, you know, brings me back. And I'm like, damn, yeah, maybe they're right. I, I have a responsibility. Yeah. yeah, like I can make a difference in the future. Like right now, I don't want to get promoted. Like there has been many opportunities for me to get promoted, you know, and I have. Does getting promoted take you away from your current current job setting? Um, It would be more of a supervisor and I mean, I'll still be with the guys, but I just don't, I'm not ready yet. Yeah. I really don't feel like I'm ready to be a supervisor. And that is because I truly enjoy being out there, man. And just doing what I do. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I feel like I have more, I need to grow more mm. to be a supervisor. And maybe in knowing the future, that about yourself yeah. is, uh, and being able to say it in public forum is courageous. It, one of the big things in the Marine Corps that always stuck with me from the beginning was, you know, know yourself and seek self-improvement. Yep. We're not doing everything for you when you're deficient. Make yourself less deficient. Mm-hmm. However you do that, you know, we might not be able to do it for all. I mean, this is exactly what you're embodying. You're, you're taking off time to go to the range. And not only that, you're going to go to the range. You're going to bring that back and train your uh, junior guys up on, you know, or get them to the range. Yeah. And that's, that's what it's truly about, man. My goal is... If I go to the range one day off work, I try to take somebody with me, mm. one of the guys with me. That is my goal. Mm-hmm. Because if I could take somebody with me, I'm going to make somebody else better. Not only myself, but somebody else is going to be better. Sure, sure. So that's really like moving forward. I'm not only looking to better myself, but I'm looking to better somebody else. Better the team. Yeah. Better the community, man. Yeah, <clears throat> well, dude, we've been going for a while. I think we can kind of chop it right there. It's been a, it's been insightful conversation. Conversation. Um, before we go though, I noticed on your shirt it says Gen Rats only. Is this like a uh, 
like a police ran kind of kind of kind of situation which you go ahead and give them a little shameless plug so one of my good friends man sean um and his wife tori uh sean is a retired marine <clears throat> and tori is also a retired marine who got injured just like i did and they are both very into uh, physical fitness and just bringing that better version of yourself. So they have their own local veteran-owned company for physical fitness and also they um, coffee. You know, they uh, they brew their their local coffee once mm-hmm. a month, mm-hmm. man. And, and I've been one of their main supporters since day one. And Where's this at? It's right here, local, Richlands. Richlands, um, where yeah. at? Um, Hall Branch Road. Hall Branch Road. You local, you local people go out yeah. and check them out. What's it called? Um, well, their coffee is actually uh, available at like Mike's Farm, okay, and uh, other stores. But if you guys are interested, um, DreamRatsOnly.com or GrowCoffee.com and Grow Coffee. Yep. Okay. Um, but they were. I'm thankful for them. You know, they gave me some T-shirts. Um, next month I will be going to uh different colleges and on uh, different police trainings mm-hmm. um as a guest speaker uh already this year in march of this year i was one of the guest speakers at the uh 2022 um nc2a swap uh symposium which about 20 teams came out and i was one of the guest speakers where i spoke about my first incident in detail i had a powerpoint pictures videos mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um that me- really touched my heart because i saw senior officers walk up in the middle of my speech and like we're crying and walking out mm-hmm. and afterwards i you know they approached me and said man thank you i needed to hear that i've been waiting for so many years to finally meet somebody that has been in the same shoes as i am mm-hmm. and knowing that i am not alone so next year um the opportunity came i'll be in wolfson next year november 14th and i'll be in charlotte um november 2nd and 17th and i'll be uh speaking to different cops they're going to uh, tactical training as well and just sharing my story and meeting them and, and just letting them you know letting them know that they're not alone so that's where i'm at now man good on you that's a that's going to do it for us guys uh today i hope you took something out of this uh out of this interview it's been insightful it's it's the people that are on the streets every every day the the true embodiment of an officer that cares about the community the constituents and the people that he serves uh, Drago, forever, forever grateful, honored to have you on the show, and um, and, you and know, I brought you I a just gift. Can't say enough. Yes, sir. Yeah, please. Yeah, show the camera. Mm, New team shirts. These are team shirt. Pender County Sheriff's Office special response, response team. team. Yep. And SRT. Um, Heck yeah, man! I'll sport it up for sure. That coin also. Um, all lives matter, but mainly. All blue lives matter. Fact. All right, you guys got it. You know where you can find Drago. Um, hopefully, you don't find him on the business end. You know, you <laughs> want to find him in the, in the professional end of things. But man, like I said, I want to stay in touch. Um, I'm glad that I met you. I'm glad that that you came out uh, and you were uh, so generous with your time today. You know, on a you know on a Friday, uh, but. Um, you know, I appreciate you. And until next time, guys, choice is not chances. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening to Choices Not Chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances podcast.
Thanks, and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger. We have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Yeah.